VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, December the 12th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the show today, so you'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, boy, oh boy, are the growlers ever hot to start the season in the ECHL. 23 games played, 17 wins, 5 losses, 1 overtime loss, a winning percentage of 761, and of course a 3-game sweep over the Iowa Heartlanders over the weekend. Three OT victories, so they are smoking out. 93 goals scored, I believe, leads the entirety of the ECHL, and they're top of the table in the North Division. And Alex Nook with a couple of points over the weekend. Two games, two assists. He's going to have a big opportunity here now. The Avalanche are decimated with injuries, especially amongst their top six forwards. So Nook will see a bit more time and hopefully a little bit more contribution. I know he's had a rough start to the year, but terrific player. He'll be fine. All right, so tis the season, right? We put our Christmas tree up early this year. Now, I do really appreciate a real tree, a real Christmas tree, but because of the mess and some of the other issues surrounding them, my wife decided that we were going to have a fake tree, which we've had for the last few years. All right, so I can live with it. But, boy, we see the prices on just about everything we touch and want to buy have skyrocketed. That includes trees. Now, there's no doubt the price of fuel and fertilizer has contributed, and the people who are in the Christmas tree business are in it not only to brighten the holiday spirit, but also to make a few bucks. One of my pals, and I just happened to see a news story this morning, but I ran into one of the boys at the grocery store on Saturday. He was asking, how's your Christmas going? You ready for Christmas? The old standard conversation. And he's, he went on to tell me that he paid $150 for a Christmas tree. It seems to me, not that long ago, it was 25 bucks maybe. You know, you go to Churchill Forest, for instance, to Churchill Square. And I haven't seen a whole lot of parking lots blocked with Christmas tree sales this year. Just happened to notice it after he told me that he paid 150 for it. But the prices are unbelievable. It looks like and feels like the average is about $75. You can pay up to $195 for a large Christmas tree at one of the notable outlets where people are shopping for the tree. But holy smokes. Christmas trees, like everything else, and people are going to buy it. You know, it is a big part of the season, I think, for many people and the decorations inside their home. It includes whatever doodads that they put out on the mantle and different tables and their kitchen island, but the tree is it. But boy, oh boy, they are wicked expensive. Anyway, I want to talk about that. We can do it. And, of course, just mention the home. And, like, when some stories break in the news and you'll get a a rash of stories that are very similar follow closely behind. You know, whether it be the Crown Lands issue, which the government has got to figure out, the current structure is not manageable, it's far too expensive and time-consuming for individuals who, lo and behold, find out they don't own the land that their home is on. Same thing with the home inspection story that, you know, a lot of attention was given to last week. And I believe this was an Ariana Kellen story. And after it was uh, published on the website, all of a sudden my email inbox was flooded with people who have home inspection woes. We don't have a regulatory body. We don't have a licensing board for home inspectors. Only in Alberta and B.C. do they do that. Quebec is saying that they are going to entertain that idea. Ontario actually passed, pardon me, have table legislation that has not yet been fully implemented to create that oversight board. 
the government here in this province doesn't seem to have a big appetite for making any steps in that direction. So the minister responsible would be Service and Health Minister Sarah Studley. This is just a department quote from a spokesperson, not the minister responsible. Should there be a decision in the future to consider licensing, there are a number of areas that would need to be researched, such as standards, costs, and training. There are national standards out there, and once again, we're not having to reinvent the wheel. Let's have a look, not necessarily copy word for word, copy and paste the legislation in B.C. and Alberta, but there's got to be a fairly uncomplicated way to deal with this. Again, for the vast majority of us, the most expensive item we will ever purchase will be a home. And when you are looking to dodge a home that has way too many faults for your liking, or it is to evaluate what the associated cost would be to bring some things back up to a, a better state of repair. And that goes from all kinds of stuff, water damage and the roof and the foundation, the standards. But why aren't we going down this path? And I know legislation is not as fundamental as you simply take a pen to paper and you whip something out and you blast it through the House of Assembly and off we go. But there's got to be best practices that we can take a look at. And people in the province, even if the government encourages us to get a home inspection, to know that you might not actually get an inspector who is up to snuff. Whether they've had uh, monitored inspections or they've taken some courses in how to absolutely and correctly identify shortcomings or faults in a home. But this has got to be done, doesn't it? I mean, just think about it. You go through the inspection process. You maybe get some referrals, maybe from your real estate agent. And who knows what relationship there might be between an inspection company and a real estate agent with some bird dog fees or what have you. And that's not to say anyone's leading you purposefully astray. But if we don't have some oversight body, then the problems will persist. So you thought that you were buying the home, let's use round number, $350,000. And you looked at, after the results of an inspection that maybe there's fifty grand worth of stuff I need to consider uh, after I purchase the home and I've got to spend it. Okay, then that fifty turns into a hundred, Or you were given a fairly clean bill of health in your inspection, and then lo and behold, months later, you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars in repairs that weren't identified with the home inspection. So... I sh I'm sure it's happened to a lot of folks because the numbers of emails and the horror stories that I've heard since this story broke over on the sea is really quite something. So I think the problem should take a really careful look at that. And speaking of homes, won't be a big deal in many corners of the province, but I think the conversation regarding heritage and the preservation of heritage properties is pretty important. You know, once they're gone, they're never coming back to the state. Like, for instance, Bryn Mawr or Baird Cottage, 115-year-old building... Uh, once was a personal private family home. So I walked by it every now and then. It certainly fell into disrepair. It was kind of dilapidated in many regards. And of course, it just became the home of vandals and people sneaking in to smoke pot or to drink beer or whatever they were doing. And then I don't know how suspicious the fire would be, but with no electricity running to it, all of a sudden it burnt to the ground last Friday morning. So I guess the questions are several here. You know, people talk about heritage. But I'm not so sure anyone's got a real solution in protecting the heritage properties. So the city can indeed attach the heritage status to one property or another. But they don't have the ability to force the owners to do whatever, to spend whatever money to bring it back to its past glory, because it's expensive. I mean, something like trying to remodel or to polish up Baird Cottage would be extraordinarily expensive task to take on. So what do we actually do here? You know, if you think about it a step further... When we have so many unique communities, including St. John's, once we lose more and more heritage structures, which are important, 
Next thing you know, we are simply nothing more than a vinyl-siding jungle. Nothing appealing about it. Now, I know it must be a sight for sore eyes when you come in through the narrows and you see the jelly bean row multicolored houses. That's brilliant stuff. But at some point, it's got to be more than that. I do appreciate the fact that many people in those core downtown streets have that sense of pride in their properties and have tried to contribute to the vibrant colors. But heritage is more than colors. So something got to be done about the uh, the issue regarding heritage as well because some communities have done a, a, a top-shelf job in doing exactly that. You know, Bonavista comes to mind. So if you want to take it on, we can do it. And we talked about the Vandals and their relationship with the Baird Cottage or Bryn Mawr. We know that crime is not unique to one pocket, one neighborhood, one community or another. It's across the province. Now, again, this is not about fear, but the numbers of instances regarding personal property crime is really quite something. Now, we can talk about what is the root cause of it, whether people are simply hungry or it's driving their their, uh, drug addiction, which is very likely a big part of it. So this story from Belle Island. You know, this family came to Belle Island because the the wife or the mother had uh, visited Belle Island over the years as a child and always thought that because she loved it so much and exploring on the island that she'd eventually make it her home and put down roots. Before they spent the night in their home, they were robbed. And those stories are quite common. Now, this is not throwing shade over Belle Island because I have a personal relationship with Belle Island as well. And I love it over there. But within these small communities, you've got to know and believe, anyway, that people over there know exactly who's responsible. And I know you don't necessarily want to be going to Crime Stoppers or potentially putting yourself at risk because you have told the police exactly who is doing it. And you would also think, too, let's say they're stealing whatever. They scrapped an ATV. At some point, those parts have to make it off the island. You know, just like when we try to protect the province from the importation of some of these illicit drugs, We've got opportunities, especially if they're coming through at the notable ports of call. You would think that we might be able to nick a few of the boys or girls coming off Belle Island with any of this stolen property because they're not hawking it on the island. They're coming to Indian Portugal Cove and then wherever, St. John's, I suppose, to finish off the resale. But, you know, whether it be talking about the drugs and the crime, whether it be Livingstone or Tessier or Belle Island or any community where you're listening this morning, I'm sure you see it as much as we all do. And with the difficult times that many people are facing, you have to believe this type of personal property crime, it's not going to wane just because we talk about it, whether it be police presence, because that's the immediacy, isn't it? You know, nothing to slow you down on the highway like a cop car, nothing to keep you from committing a crime, personal property or otherwise, if police are around or you know that they're repeatedly and frequently around your neighborhood. And then some of the long-term issues regarding drugs, for instance. But anyway, you want to talk about it. Let's go. A couple of food notes. You know I couldn't resist an opening without talking about food because it's cracked. For the moose hunters out there, hopefully you you got your moose this season. And this happens, I would suggest, fairly frequently, is that the moose hunters that I know are really quite generous in sharing it around. But now with the Share the Harvest program officially launched, maybe, just maybe, you know, as opposed to finding a roast or some burgers or sausages at the bottom of the freezer this time next year, Maybe take the opportunity to know that the food banks would love nothing more than your kind donation of this country food. You know, there's nothing more organic or uh, high in protein than some of the moose meat products. And yes, I know many of you are very generous already, but maybe you can have a look around at your take for this particular hunting season and consider a food bank as being the home 
of some of your moose because we see we have the stories all the time it's um, it's almost unavoidable you can't even open your eyes and consider you know what's for supper tonight knowing that so many people what's for supper is the is a question that looms large and it's not about just coming up with the menu it's whether or not they can actually afford it so sharing the harvest is a great program also another cool program is called farm to cafeteria and good morning to becky windsor up at holy heart of mary they've actually gone ahead and applied for the funding which was a ten thousand dollar grant but it covers the cafeteria equipment so whether they got the money for hydroponics equipment so they can grow lettuce and or money for a salad bar or other kitchen type equipment equipment is one thing but apparently the students at holy heart of mary they went for donations whether it be food or monetary donations and last week one day they cooked a free meal tacos and salad for 200 other peers in the school so all of these ideas are just terrific. So you combine the farm to cafeteria program with some of the work being done, for instance, at Food First NL to get homegrown produce, whatever product, into the province of schools, into our long-term care facilities, into our personal care homes, into our hospitals. Just another program where we still have to amp up our energy to deal with the food insecurity issue. But between sharing the harvest and farm to cafeteria and a variety of other programs out there, steps in the right direction. And sticking with school and the Issues reflective of the times, the school lunch program. So some 15,000 hot lunches per day in the schools that they service. It's a pay-what-you-can model. They hope for $4 per student per meal. Last year this time, there was 800 students who were unable to pay anything or unable to pay the full $4. That 800 is now 1,900. Just again to talk about what we're seeing. And let's go to K-12 to before we move on to other issues. The absentee rate is really quite something. Again, seems to be most of the conversations I have are either at the gas station or at the grocery store. This one comes from the grocery store as well. Sometimes it's a long trip uh, for a little bit of shopping. So this particular lady that I know, and she has uh, two children, keeping them both home for the rest of this calendar year. They've got a Christmas vacation up on the mainland to visit with family for this holiday season. And for what they're seeing in their own child's classrooms and the amount of sickness floating around, they're keeping them home. Now, that's an extraordinary measure to take, but I do think it's probably very common where parents of school-aged children or caregivers or nan and pop every day wondering what's going to be brought home because the severity of the flu seems to be really quite something. And the numbers of people suffering. I read a story again this morning about uh, one person's experience over in the hacking, coughing, wheezing emergency room where so many people are presenting, and you want to tackle it, we can do it. On healthcare. So the premiers across the country are asking for a face-to-face meeting with the prime minister to talk about health care funding. It's always going to be part of the conversation. There was a couple of years ago that this province struck a bilateral agreement on health care funding transfer dollars, and there was a couple of specific areas that it was going to be spent, mental health and long-term care, if I remember correctly. So the prime minister has suggested that he and the government are open to increasing funding, but whatever this means, with strings attached. Maybe it has to be spent in one area or another. But these types of meetings are important. And there does need to be more of a federal or national conversation regarding health care because the provinces are experiencing very similar problems. And the, it's easy enough for the federal government to say their only responsibility in health care is in the health care transfer dollar. But that has contributed to the type of mess that we're seeing in health care. So the inevitability is right in front of us. There is going to be, very likely, 
more and more private offerings, which comes with a multitude of problems. Whether it be that the public, uh, public offerings will be the home for all the complicated, complex medical health needs versus the private clinics, which will do a fair bit, I would imagine, to poach healthcare professionals, you know, turning away patients that would be very complicated and a variety of other reasons why. You know, there is a room, there is a space for some private care. But the way things are looking and the hospitals that are absolutely crushed and overwhelmed and the long wait list, Canadians are waiting longer than ever in our history to be seen in the healthcare system. Once you get in, the professionals are top shelf. But the wait times are madness. And if you want to take it on, let's go. And on that, there's very sad news. Uh, the Dr. Nazir Lada passed away while on holidays in Egypt. I wonder how many patients were still on his roster and all those 15 years after his so-called retirement age, where he continued to be one of the linchpin offerings inside mental health, how many patients are now without his services, and where is his replacement? Who backfills the role Dr. Lada played? I don't know if anyone's going to be able to fill his shoes in full, whether it be as a mental health professional and or the advocacy that he brought to bear. But someone put that uh, in my ear this morning, and I'm happy to put it out there because that's an important question. You know, when the wait list is what it is already, and access to long-term mental health care is as tattered as it might be, but please, if you need help, please go get it. There's some out there. You might be waiting a long time, but start the conversation with a healthcare professional and or other support groups that are out there. But who backs up what was done and the role filled by just one individual, Dr. Lada himself? And in that world... You know, the St. Clair's announcement, it came out of nowhere, replacing St. Clair's. Okay, it's an old building, and yes, it does need to be replaced at some moment in time. But that was sort of a strange, out-of-left-field type of announcement, and I haven't heard one single peep since. So whether it be where they're going to put a new hospital to replace St. Clair's, what are we doing when we talk about the private-public partnership, the P3, and the appropriate nature of it in health in particular? But toss that one around. Okay. How are we doing on the phone there, David? Let's get her going this morning. Whether or not you have any interest in an electric vehicle ever in your lifetime is kind of beside the point when we look at what the federal government is talking about, not in retaliation, but recognizing what were the implications in this country when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed in the United States. There was a sigh of relief with some easing about what the, the language could have looked like regarding preferential subsidies for vehicles assembled in Canada and Mexico. But inside that Inflation Reduction Act is billions and billions of dollars for manufacturers in the creation of batteries, whether it be for your cell phone, your laptop, or yes, an electric vehicle. And what that's going to mean for the competitive nature of Canada. Will some of these manufacturers just go to the United States and take advantage of that money? Now, we had federal representatives, including Minister Champagne in Asia and Europe, meeting with some of the big ones, Hyundai, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, and yes, the federal government is going to be spending billions of dollars. Now, again, it doesn't really matter if you like or trust or want an electric vehicle. The fact of the matter is many people in the world will. We also read an interesting analysis about maybe moving too fast regarding electric vehicles, but that's a bit of a different story. So when we're going to try, and whether these are production targets that the government will subsidize, that's a lot of jobs. And this country, again, and this province, well-positioned on that front, this is, the, this is the, one, the only democratic country on the face of the earth with all the critical minerals required for not only the mining itself and the jobs come with it, and yes, there's an environmental concern there, 
But with the minerals that we just send off to another country, they make a product that they sell back to us. We can do better. There's going to be huge opportunities and thousands and thousands of jobs right from mining through the end of the assembly line. But Canada's going to be spending a ton of money. I mean, we already heard from the Prime Minister $1.5 billion for EV battery plant in Ontario, and there's going to be more of that to come. And people still want to talk about Bill C-21, and I understand that. That's the gun control legislation. It's fatally flawed. It's in front of a committee, and they have to do better. Gun control is favored by Canadians, but this type of legislation, where all the confusion, where this firearm is capable of this, not banned, but the exact same type of uh, firearm, but a different manufacturer with a different model number is banned. It doesn't make any sense. So don't fall for anyone who tells you that you'll never be able to hunt again and every tool will be taken out of your hunting toolbox. It's not that, but the legislation doesn't make any sense the way it's currently structured. And I know there's lots of gun owners in this province who are displeased with that. We can take it on if you're into it. A little positive one before we go. To the break. I had it right in front of me. Turn your attention to the skies. The season's most predictable meteor shower happens tomorrow evening in through Wednesday evening. It's called a Geminide uh, meteor shower. So the moon's going to be pretty bright, so the suggestion is, and you don't have to look in one particular area because the fireballs or the shooting stars are going to be everywhere. The moon's going to be bright, so the suggestion is turn your back to the moon and just gaze up into the sky, maybe with a chair with a bit of head support because you might be waiting a while to see one, but it's always fascinating when you do get a glimpse of one of these one of these meteor showers or shooting stars or whatever the reference is appropriately or properly. Anyway, we're on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline.vocm.com. When we come back, you're in the queue. I can feel it. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go line number one. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. What a beautiful morning out here. Lovely out. I'm on a trail, and I stopped because you might be picking up a lot of the walking, but it's just gorgeous. I recommend everyone who can get out and get some of this fresh air. So, look, uh, couple of things. I'm just listening to the Salvation Army uh, promo there from the Avalon Mall, you know. And last week, good morning. Uh, last week, uh, I heard the commander of the base in Gander recommending that nobody give any, any of their donations to the Salvation Army this year because they made a decision. Have you heard that, the base commander? I did hear that. That is just terrible. I mean, the Salvation Army are there for everyone just because they don't put it in their face that, that they're actually going to, you know, change their entire doctrine to suit a certain group in society they support everybody no matter from what background no matter what issue no matter what it is they don't judge so i think the base commander has got to retract that and say look i was wrong please contribute to the salvation army where would everyone be without the salvation army and many other faiths that are doing this out of the goodness of their hearts they're not doing it for their own benefit they're doing it for the benefit of our communities and the very people that the base commander talked about. It's just terrible, and I think it's got to be retracted. So I don't know how you feel about that. but I Well, look, I mean, the, the Salvation Army does have a particular religious stance on the LGBTQ community. Okay, yeah. but I don't think they've ever turned anyone, anyone away who's a member of that community. And, I mean, we talk about how they reacted, whether it be feeding the truckers at the beginning of the pandemic out yeah. along the highway yeah. or coming to people's yeah. emergency need with housing and other, uh, other services after a home yeah. fire or what have you. What they did yeah. out in Port of Basque, for instance. So yeah. they've done incredible work. We've partnered up with the Salvation Army here at VOCM many, many times on a variety of different, uh, of, uh, different initiatives. So but the question I would have, though, is uh, what does the base commander, who's, 
Who was that she, I believe it's a lady, who is she responsible to? The members of the rank and file and or charitable organizations. So I don't know how many people are complained about the Salvation Army who are under her charge, but it kind of came out of nowhere once again for me. Does this, does this mean that there's going to be some families left without because they're no longer operating on the base? I don't know. But how do you adjudicate what the base commander should be doing, who she's responsible to? Can, can I answer that? Like, sure you can. And, and like, like obviously answers to the needs of the community. That's what they're there for. And, you know, not, not only the Salvation Army. Without the Salvation Army, the military wouldn't be able to handle all the things that went on out in, out in uh, Port of Basque without the Red Cross, without others, and without the faith communities coming forward and donating, bringing food from their churches and everything else. I mean, it, like, it's a big need. So I think she's got to retract that and say that she was wrong. Please come out and support the Salvation Army. I mean, they're in all the Sobe stores. They're in all the Dominion stores. They're at every street corner and everywhere. And everyone, including myself, I mean, the first thing I do when I come out of a supermarket, wherever I see one, no matter what money I have in my pocket, I give it to them. I don't consider it that uh, whether they, they, they religiously uh, have a doctrine of any kind, I consider the good works that they're doing for the very people all of us, but especially the very people that they're, that the uh, base commander was talking about. It's just terrible. So I just want to put that out there. I think that's got to be recranted. Not only that, but because they said not only Salvation Army, but all faith communities, are people going to start restricting their donations to all faith communities who are doing the food banks, like the St. Vincent de Paul and the United Church and the, and the other ones that are doing so much good works in our communities, and we need them badly. So it's never about them. It's always about the community, and that's what she's got to realize. Okay. Um, so you now the main reason I called was because I was in, like, a lot of people to get their flu shots recently, and I uh, went into the Eastern Health location in, uh, in by Mount Pearl there on top of the road. But I wasn't informed of what I heard yesterday on the national program across the country uh, talking about uh, by, the, by an infectious disease person who, who, who surprised me when he said, it's going to take about two weeks for your, for your flu shot to take effect. Now, an awful lot of people, and I've talked to them, good, I got my flu shot, it's Monday or Tuesday. God, thank God I'm ready for the party Friday night kind of thing. Well, no, you better back that up a bit. They're saying it's at least two weeks before it actually gets in and takes effect. So they recommend that you keep that, that major precaution and your mask and everything else uh, close to you and well, on you, securely fastened to your face so that you don't pick up the flu on the, on, on the heels of the flu shot because you didn't wait long enough. And at this time of the year, with all the parties going on, there's no shortage of people going to parties. A lot of them probably have their flu shot, but they're not aware it takes two weeks, at least two weeks, for your system to be acclimatized to this particular flu. Yeah, I, I think I probably just knew that because I've had the flu, converse, flu shot conversation every year since I've been sitting in this chair. But yes, it takes two full weeks at least for your body to create the antibodies to actually protect against right. the flu. But that's for the full effect, the full protection, you know, and you will not have any once you leave shoppers and go directly to a party on a Friday night if you got the shop Friday afternoon. you have very little protection. There's always well, been conversations about how effective how much protection is offered by a flu shop because we're kind of just right. chasing it right. based on what, for instance, let's just say what the flu looks like in Australia and then to try to create a vaccine to fight off those strains of influenza that they saw there. It doesn't make it 100% uh, foolproof and 100% protection, but it's certainly better than none and a well-understood type of vaccine that these are. Well, and not only that, the last couple of years where a lot of people didn't get it last year or the year before because we've all been masked up and basically isolating ourselves, uh, our system 
hasn't been familiar with the flu shot. And I think the flu shot uh, was at least the, the, the population level of flu flu shots uh, was down severely. It's easier to talk to, to our good professor at the university about that or infectious disease, uh, I guess, spokesperson, if you will. Uh, maybe it's good to bring them on and talk about it because your system's been knocked down. Not only that you haven't received it probably for a couple of years, but more so, uh, you know, with the pandemic and all that that did to our systems, I think the latest number was 85% or sorry, 80% of the country ended up with COVID. I think the number was 26 million. I think last week that, that the government of Canada estimated actually got, got the pan or got the uh, COVID. So if you had the COVID that's knocked down your system too. So you're like, like you just said, how effective this flu shot's going to be depends on your immune system, and it's been knocked backwards, even just generally. So, yeah, it definitely may not have the effect uh, even after two weeks that you think it will. And people can leave it up to their own personal choices if they're going to or want to get a seasonal flu shot. And because there's never been yeah. a change in the definition of, you know, fully vaccinated, whether it be COVID or 19 or otherwise, so it becomes very much simply personal choice if you want your third or your fourth or whatever booster and or flu shot. But I appreciate the time. Enjoy your walk this morning, Sean. Thank you. And enjoy your day. Thank you. Thank ben. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, the two-week lag is a real thing, and I don't know if everybody or many people knew that or were informed of it. I assume when you get it administered, wherever that may be, one clinic, one pharmacy or another, that that is part of the discussion that you have with the person who would be administering the flu shot. But anyway, let's see. Let's take a break here bro, pretty much on time. When we come back, Bill is there to talk about the gun control legislation. That is Bill C-21. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Doing okay. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, thank you. I don't usually call in, but I felt a need this week and last week. Uh, I'm a person who hunts. And I'm very concerned about uh, Bill C-21, the way the government is dealing with it, the optics, the transparency. And let me preface it first by saying that very few governments in the past have ever used orders in council to do this type of thing. Uh, The Trudeau government, which, by the way, I mean, I've supported liberal governments all my life, but I can't anymore because of the way they're approaching things like this. So the transparency or lack thereof and the way they're doing it is extremely dangerous to our society. And they've isolated a group of people in our society when they came out and said that they were going to have an assault rifle ban. And then they moved into handguns and they used orders and counsel to put those together. Uh, What people don't realize is at the last minute, they made amendments to Bill C-21 where they always said they weren't going to target hunters, law-abiding hunters. Uh, And if you now look at the document that's in place, and by the way, it's like probably 396 pages long. I'm not sure if the liberal government's level of arrogance is such that they believe the general public is stupid, or I'll use the word unintelligent, or if they themselves are actually that unintelligent in their dealings day to day. But you can look at the document, and hunters are being targeted. There is uh, numerous lists of, uh, of firearms that are not assault rifles, that are not handguns, that are being banned. 
But more so, there are general classifications, and they're the dangerous part of Bill C-21. So they don't have to list your make and model. I've talked to some friends of mine who've gone on, and they've said, well, I looked down through the list, and my gun is not listed. And that's misleading. Your gun doesn't have to be listed. Your gun has to meet the classifications. For example, if this bill goes through, Newfoundlanders for years, for the last 70 years, have hunted with Lee Enfield 303 rifles. It will go from being a non-restricted rifle to a prohibited rifle. Winchester, Model 30 lever action rifles, any lever action rifle that has a capacity in the magazine of carrying more than five rounds will now go from being non-restricted to prohibited. Under this order in council, because the Liberal government has learned a lesson when they tried to have a buyback program with assault rifles, they won't be buying back any of your firearms. What they will be doing is telling you that you can sit on them, you can keep them in your house, you don't have to pass them in, but if you're caught using them, it's a mandatory jail sentence. So you won't find a Winchester rifle uh, named in this Bill C-21 list, but if you read the fine print, the list is ever-changing, the list is not mandatorily made public, you don't get a notification because the government doesn't know who owns these rifles because we don't have a long gun registry. And you've taken law-abiding citizens who uh, today are, you know, going out and hunting a moose with a 303 or a Winchester 3030 or a Marlin, or they're, they're you know, they're, they've got a Browning. And tomorrow, unbeknownst to them, they are a criminal, which is disturbing to say the least. And I've looked at the fine print of this document, and now then the disturbing part is I've been trying to make contact with not just my MP, but all MPs on the island. They won't take phone calls. You get their answering machines. And if you want to leave a message, you can, you know, they will get back to you at their own speed. But they're not, uh, they're not available to have discussions about this. So when I see these members getting up in the House saying we're not targeting Mendocino and and Blair and Booty Hutchings getting up and saying, we are not targeting hunters. This is assault rifles. Yeah. Well, well it, you know. inadvertently they are in some form. You're, you're right. I don't think there's any denying that. I've admitted freely on this program that I'm by no means anywhere nudged up against an expert in these firearms. I just don't know. But I have gone and talked to my hunter buddies about the list, what they make of the legislation, what have you. And if we have very similar firearms, one is now being banned, one is not, then of course there's some confusion and it's got to be addressed. I think they're probably going to eventually uh, get this right or closer to right because this is a political issue as much as it is gun control at this point because people are upset about what's on that list. Very similar to when the first list of 1,500 banned firearms were produced. Before we knew it, there were more weapons or firearms added to that list unbeknownst to anybody. So you can't have people without the knowledge of public disclosure. All of a sudden, they have whatever firearm in the back of their truck or in the cab of their truck, and now they're caught and they go to jail. They didn't even know the firearm was on the list. That doesn't make any sense at all. But but what is the purpose for this? I mean, you well, know, less guns. Yeah, but no, that's misleading, and you know better than that because this has nothing to do with less guns. In the I, I'm not part of the government. I don't. I don't have anything no, to do with this. I, I know you are. But you you have been told by many people, no doubt, and this has been brought up in the House, that this has nothing to do 
with uh, the fluidity of gun access in Canada. It has nothing to do with criminals and the you know cross-border transportation of guns. Your t- this is a optics bill that deals with guns in the hands of registered law-abiding citizens. That is their property. And my concern with order in council, I have two concerns. Well, first off, it's never been used for anything like this before. But I have two concerns with order in council. Number one, a subsequent government is going to have a hard time overturning this because it has to go to a court. Number two, when you can use an order in council to ban this week a gun, Next week, they can ban all gas trucks, or they can ban houses that are too large for individuals. You're opening up a Pandora's box where the government, on a whim, can say, okay, we want all electric vehicles, so all your F-150s or your Dodge Rams, they are now illegal tomorrow. We're not going to pay you for them, but you can't use them anymore. Or if you have an oil-burning house, you can't have that anymore. It's It's a slippery slope. And this, is the, this, this, this bill has nothing to do with gun crime in Canada, because if you were to look at the number of people who are going to be affected by this bill, the rare percentage of anybody on that list being involved in a gun crime is minuscule. But on the same breath, the Liberal government under Trudeau has relaxed gun crime laws against criminals, against biker gangs, against People involved in gun crimes brought their brought their jail sentences down, and they've done very little of anything to do anything about the illegal sale of illegal firearms coming across borders. Well, I, I don't know if you listen to this program at all, but uh, that's my starting point with gun control every single time, is this yeah. type of legislation is cart before the horse. If the problem, so says the National Association of Police Chiefs, is gang-related violence that uses handguns or any type of firearm comes across from the American-Canadian border. So... Everyone agrees with that, I think. Well, most people agree that if you don't start there, you're completely missing the point. When homicide rates went up in this country last year, by and large, and it was only a, a modest increase, by and large, that can be almost entirely attributed to gangs and crimes on the street by criminals, absolutely. not hunters. Absolutely. That, that's right. I agree. And that's absolutely true. I mean, don't, don't take it from me. Take it from the police chiefs across the country. So I, everyone, everyone should agree with that point that you're making there. A couple of very quick questions for you, Bill. The ban on handguns, even though I don't own any firearms, the ban on handguns is perfectly fine with me. How about you? No, I disagree with that because, I mean, we have sports shooters. We have people going to the Olympics. We have it. Look, we have a contingent of people that are involved in rotten gun clubs across this across this province and every province. And you have law-abiding citizens. And when you apply to get a restricted license to have a handgun for sport shooting, it's not like we live in Texas. You know, I can't put on a handgun and go to Walmart, nor do I want to. Although, as an aside, and I'm not in any way propagating this, with the current amount of crime coming out of St. John's and the, uh, you know, the... Uh, the, the, the vehicle thefts and the hijacking of cars and people getting hurt. I wonder sometimes where our criminal element is going and how we're going to do it. But the point is with handguns, uh, I believe anybody committing a crime with a handgun should be punished to the fullest extent of the law and even more so than the law we have. But if you have a person who is a respected uh, law abiding citizen who has a restricted firearm and they want to go to a shooting range and shoot, 
that's no different than spending tens of million dollars on golf courses or tens of million dollars on curling clubs. It's a sport. It's recognized in the Olympics. It's recognized by IPSEC and, you know, shooting competitions. Okay. So the problem, the, the transparency I, I feel with handguns for the Trudeau government is twofold. One, it detracts from other issues that they have on the table that they don't want people to focus on. And two, it feeds into the votes for urban areas such as Toronto and Montreal, which they need to get elected. And you have a lot of people who have no idea about firearms or no idea about handguns, and they say, just ban them all. You know, but I mean, why, why, what is the difference in a person in being involved in a handgun competition in the Olympics and a curling competition in the Olympics? Well, I think there's an obvious difference, Bill, and I know that you're just trying to make the point. But, like, for instance, if a sports shooter... No, hold on now. They're they're recognized sports on the international level, okay? And, I mean, I've traveled numerous places in the world, and we have one of the strictest gun laws for citizens in the world. I mean, I'm not allowed to have a gun. I'm given the privilege to have a gun, okay? Because I have to have a permit and a red and either a non-restricted or restricted firearms license. The government controls that. The people who are not allowed to have guns are criminals, but yet they're using the guns in most of the crimes that are being committed on the street. And Bill C-21 will do nothing. And most of those are handguns. If a sports shooter could store, keep, clean, use their firearm at a rod and gun club, I think most reasonable Canadians don't have any issue with that at all because that's not a jeopardy to public safety. How could it possibly be if you're using it in a safe environment that's regulated at a rod and gun club, target shooting, sports shooting, whatever the case may be? Uh, last one that I had a question well, for. Now, hold on. I, I, I disagree with you on that. because Disagree with what? How do you, well, the fact that, and, and I've heard this argument, well, let's have all the guns stored at a rod and gun club, Okay. Uh, so we've got three or four or five hundred handguns stored at a rod and gun club. Put up a neon sign for a criminal <laughs> saying, you know, you've got 400 handguns here or 600 handguns. What kind of security would you have to have on that building to make sure that someone doesn't take advantage of breaking in? I mean, they break into banks and bank machines. They break into, you know, sporting goods stores. Uh, if you look at the number of times a handgun, and by the way, a shotgun can do way more damage than a handgun, quite easily, and carries more bullets. The issue with the handgun is how you can conceal it, though, Bill, and you know these things, right, as a gun owner. I know that, but you can conceal a number of things. And handgun crimes, and I'm not uh, you know, here advocating for handgun crime, but as an aside, handgun crimes haven't worked in England. They haven't worked in, 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 in China. They haven't worked in the majority of places, only in the instance that if one thing is taken out, something else replaces it. So I don't know if you've been in England over the last number of years. They haven't had handguns for years. But a pocket knife is now a prohibited weapon in England. And they have drop-off containers because their knife crime has gone through the roof. In, in China, acid crimes have gone through the roof. They, are not, they don't have access to handguns. But, you know, listen, and I don't want to sound in any way trivial or silly, but, you know, baseball bats and rocks are there for anybody who wants to do damage. We have a mental health issue. But the simple fact of the matter is the group of people that are being targeted with a handgun bill are not in any way responsible for the crimes that the handguns are responsible for being used in to commit in our society. There's actually been an increase. Okay. All right, Bill. There's been a stiffening in sentencing for the smuggling of illegal firearms over the border. I think it went from 12 to 16 years was was the 
uh, the change that's been recently made. Uh, this bill has no. to be revisited for every reason that you and others have spoken about, and I think there are reasonable points made for the most part. Uh, last one, because I do have to go. You say there will be no compensation. Simply, if and when you bring that prohibited firearm or restricted firearm out of your home, you'll be sent to jail. Where does it say in the fine print that there will not be any compensation? Because there's even been price tags floated around about what they think is the buyback program is going to cost. So where do you see that there's zero compensation coming? Now, the buyback program has only been put in place for AR-style weapons, okay? Assault, assault rifles. And AR doesn't stand for assault rifles. No, I know. Right? But AR-style weapons, there has been no compensation uh, ever tabled or looked at or discussed for handguns. Simply, the handgun bill states that anybody who has a handgun right now who's a restricted handgun owner and has bought a handgun is allowed to keep the handgun in their possession until they die or want to turn it in. And at that point, they're not allowed to sell it and they're not allowed to transfer ownership. The handgun has to be destroyed with no monetary buyback value at all. With inter- I mean, you, you look at, for example, the number of handguns and the number of rifles that are non-restricted. The government would be bankrupt in trying to, you know, some of the, some of the, the, the rifles that are on this list, I'm not sure if you're involved in this industry, but some of the rifles on this list are not in the hundreds of thousands, but they're in the millions. They're collector's items. The government has no plan in place to have a buyback program or handguns or non-restricted rifles on Bill C-21, only for assault-style weapons. Bill, I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you as well. Um, I just thought uh, a bit of a, a good feel story here. Um, I remember last week there we were talking about um, traditions in Newfoundland that you know are starting to die off, like the mummering. And uh, so this weekend here, me and my uh, my better half Jill and our friends Debbie and Melissa, and we went out mummering. We went to uh, a birth. Now we we called ahead to make sure it was okay because of the times. You can't uh, you know just show up anymore. But uh, we uh, we went out to a birthday party at uh, Dean and Dave's in uh, in Saint in Paradise. Went to our friend's place, uh, Clyde and Kathy's, and then we came back and went to a, a Christmas party at Percy's out here in CBS. Okay. And Seal Cove, and um, it was very well received. And uh, I think more people should get into doing this stuff because like you said traditions you got to keep the traditions going i think they had great success this past weekend with the mummers parade out in bowering park i don't know if the photos i saw were from that or something else but there was a huge congregation of mummers Uh, look i think it's a really unique cool uh tradition that has you know for decades it went by the wayside because there was all sorts of rules about masking in public. And I think in the 60s that changed and it's seen a resurgence. I don't know how popular it is in communities around the province, but I think it's just a cool tradition that you can only hope is not only revived, but protected and expanded. And so the Mummers Festival is uh, goes a long way. Have you done this in the past, Gone Mummering? Um, I, you see, I'm from the mainland. Okay. I, I, I was born and raised in Ontario. I've been, I've been in Newfoundland here now 25 years, so I call myself a Newfoundlander. But um, I did it uh, once there last year. I was at the Woody Island Resort, 
and they needed some people to go up and do the mummering because they do that on they have a kitchen party on Saturday night, and um, they asked me to go out and try it out. So I went out, and I love it. And uh, this weekend here, it was just you know the uh, my better half there, Jill. She said, um, "Let's go crash a couple parties." So we called the people first, obviously, like I said, and um, but it's just a it's it's a great bit of fun just to get out and, and enjoy, and everybody's just in awe that you can do this, and and it's it surprises me because everybody should be out doing it. I just wonder, look, I, again, I have to start with, I think it's awesome. I wonder how many people might be a bit wary of opening their home these days, given what we know and what we see. But you're absolutely right. It's fun. I've been on the receiving end of a visit from Mummers uh, years ago, albeit, and it was it was incredible. My boys were completely freaked out, but once they figured out we were all just having fun, then they, of course, were up dancing before long. But I'm glad that you enjoyed it, and I wonder how popular it will be for years to come but it's like everything else I was talking about heritage earlier and the Bryn Mawr or Braird cottage, uh, cottage burning down heritage also includes these physical activities or whether yeah. it be recitations or Newfoundland Labrador music and art and homes and mummering and the list is long but the list is important it is it is it's very important um, like I said you know we, we just come up with this idea on a whim and just said okay well let's go do this and um I, I just loved it so much. It's a, it's a, like I said, and I, I, I have to give a big shout out to Bercy's out here in, in CBS. Um, the, the, the Christmas party that they did was absolutely phenomenal. Great. Out in Seal Cove here. They, they did a, a absolute beautiful send. They had two live bands. Masterless men were there. Wow. Um, yeah, no, it, it was it was just a fabulous, fabulous time. Um, we were well received. Like I said, we called ahead before because just because. But um, no, I just wanted to give that uh, good shout out on a Monday morning to have a good week and uh, everybody have a Merry Christmas. Uh, just before we go, are you going to do it again this holiday season? Oh, if the chance comes up, yes. <laughs> cool. If, if, we, if we've got something on the go, yes, I absolutely will do it. Uh, does anyone in your group uh, use and play the ugly stick? Oh no, we all had an ugly stick. Oh good, <laughs> I think it's I, I, great. I, I actually, I actually broke my ugly stick. Oh no! <laughs> well, the, uh, my tapper my tapper broke at uh, Bercy's there, but uh, that's all right. That can be fixed, and we can make it. I think it's great. Thanks for telling us about it, Rob. Okay then, Patty. Thanks a lot. Uh, have a good one. Take care. Bye bye. You too. Bye. Bit of mummering. It was at Bursey's uh, out in Seal Cove. Uh, Dave Williams was asking in my ear where the party was, and apparently it was awesome. All right, uh, let's get to the news on time. When we come back, we're talking oil rebates, protests over at Mun, water and sewer issues, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to 5, and you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How about you? Not too bad, thanks. I'm just calling about the oil rebate uh, that we're supposed to receive. Uh, I sent my, and this is a, a long story, but I'll make it short. Uh, I sent my application in back in September, and I haven't heard anything, and it was waiting and waiting. And I called this morning to find out you know, what the status on it was, and uh, to be told that, oh, your application is rejected. And I said, 
why? So she went through her files and she said, I said, I sent in the information from my oil company and, you know, you know, telling them how many liters I burned and so on. And she said, uh, no, well, it, it's supposed to be stipulated on the, on the um, invoice, it's furnace oil. That wasn't on the application when I filled it out. It just said you needed something from your oil supplier to tell me how many liters you, you uh, burned in a year. So anyway, that was all right. So I called my supplier and uh, asked them to, to send it out to me in stating furnace oil, which they did. So I sent, I sent it back to the uh, oil rebate program at the, in the government and uh, called and said, did you receive it? And they said, yes, we received it. I said, so how long is it going to take to have it processed? She said, oh, about 10 weeks. Oh, boy. So I don't know, Patty. I mean, I checked with all my neighbors on the street and they haven't heard a sound, and I guess that they also probably never had it stipulated on their application or on the invoice that it was uh, it was furnace oil. So I was just wondering if any of your listeners have received the uh, the uh, the check for that. I do know someone that did get that check, uh, but I looked at the application form some while back when it was first launched. I don't recall seeing a box or the uh, question being asked, is this a stove oil, because that's also in it, or a furnace oil. But the provider, I mean, obviously you weren't going to make an application if you were using propane or burning wood or something, absolutely. so it's sort of strange. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Just so okay. folks know what we're talking about, this oil rebate is up to 500 bucks. The adjusted family income for 2021 is $100,000 or less. If right. the uh, adjusted family income is up to 150, there's a sliding scale where you get a partial refund. But so, just so people know exactly what we're talking about, uh, I can, I'm kind of confused by this one, to be honest with you, because the person that I know, I'll ask, I'll ask them. I have their cell phone number. I'll send them a text during the break to see if they actually included the statement it's furnace oil or not, because. That's sort of a strange way to reject it. And I think part of what's taken so long, because there's so many different pots of money that's been put forward, I'm betting that they put an awful lot of the public service to work with the cost of living checks. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, and, uh, you know, but I was, I was floored when, when uh, she said that to me. And, you know, I had the, all the information, like I said, but no, no, I was rejected. So now it's going to hmm. take 10 bloody weeks to get it, uh, you know, to get somebody to look at my application again. Oh, my. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to put it out there, Patty. I'm a first-time caller, and I'm not one bit shy. Uh, you don't sound it, and I'm glad you called. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anne. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Oh, Bye-bye. Yeah, so, like, so I get my oil from Harvey's. So if I made that application and my supplier, Harvey's Home Heating, sent me uh, a copy of invoice to show just how much I'm consuming to get the rebate, how can that possibly be confusing at the department. Anyway. Oh, my. Line number one. Matt, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Hi, Matt. Yes, I f- I'm phoning in to respond to the comments made by my president, Brian Timmons, last week. Mm-hmm. Did you want to fill, fill, fill the listeners in on what she said? Uh, about the protests? Yeah, and about me. Yeah, well, I mean, I ask very specific questions. I use your name directly in conversation with uh, Dr. Timmons. Uh, what she said, well, I guess I'll just be paraphrasing because I can't remember ver- verbatim what she did say. But basically it's about there's a time and the place and the decorum that's re- uh, required for protesters. Uh, 
she's talking about she feels like there's been a lack of respect. And again, maybe I'm missing some of it, but I remember the conversation, obviously. But that's sort of the summary about what she said. Is that how you heard it, Matt? Uh, yes, but I also heard her say that um, she said that there's a difference between protest and harassment. Right, yes. Uh-huh. But um, but um, but I don't agree that my that my that my protest that I did would was a form of harassment. And actually, last week I was at government health because I was nominated for the Human Rights Award, and Lieutenant Governor Judy Foote. She said everybody has the right to protest, and she said that includes me. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. So um, I really don't agree with her on that. And she also she said there was an in, an, an an independent report done, which the would, but man got to hand got to hand pick the investigator. Have you seen the report? Yes, I have. Have you? No, I haven't. Oh no, I I I I, po- I posted it on my website, so if, if, if anybody can go on and have a look at it. What does it say? Give us a the Coles notes. Okay, so the the in the investigator the the change the change the change that they amended would would one that I that I need to refrain from p- p- personal attacks. And and the intention is that I I not be allowed to protest in at, at um at, in in inside an event. But the university administration they didn't go with the intention amended by the investigators. Instead, they gave me one year probation. One year until you are allowed. Well, I'll use that word uh, until you're going to be able to protest. At events or on campus, period. No, one year non-academic probation. Oh, okay. So they so they went with a attention that is like that is like ten 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 times more severe than the investigator recommended. It's certainly, and like I said to her, many people consider the way that the university has handled protests, whether it be poster campaigns or members of Monsu who went to the, I think it was the Report to the Community event last week and were asked to leave. They weren't forced to leave, as my, now is my understanding, but I guess Dr. Timmons was pretty displeased with it all. Uh, I'll use that word. So... Give the folks just a quick understanding of exactly what the protests that you held, what was involved. Mm-hmm. So basically, Dr. Timmons was given an given a, a public address. So um, so so I got up and I and I and and I stood to the stood to the stood to the side where where holding up a poster and on the poster I said, "Top by N, no to twisting heights and out of control trending." Okay. So, so my so my protest, like it was different from the the Manchu students last week because I didn't I I didn't block I didn't block Doctor Timmins from the audience. I I I just stood off to the side. Okay. Well, I think you know university settings 
are, have long been the home of protest and discourse. I mean, if you look back, I think it was sometime in the 70s, there was a ma- major or massive sitting of hundreds of students inside the administration. Actually, it would, it would actually be thousands of students. Okay, thousands of students at the administration building. And those days are coming again. You can feel it. Yes, and the, 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 did you see the video of um, of the chief witch officer confronted the students, and I, I he did. told them that he to, he told them that he would he he he, he was going to remove them from university committees. In in my, in my view, that 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 is highly inappropriate behavior. It's certainly without question heavy-handed. It it is yes absolutely, but but I but I really like what the students did, and I take the students who did it a a a brave, not knowing what the repercussions would would would, would be. And last week you had the, the John 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 Harris on, and he said there there's a culture there's a culture of authoritarianism coming from the administration office. And I and I agree, I agree with him. I'm sure you do. It's in lockstep with your own thoughts on it and the blog postings and the like that you uh, send along to me, which I appreciate. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Matt, before we say goodbye? Yes, I'd like to send a message to Dr. Timmons. Um, Dr. Timmons, you are a phony, and you do not you do not you 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 do not govern this institution. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, we will try to hit the brakes on time. Earn, appreciate your patience. He's got a water sewer issue up the shore, the southern shore. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Earn. You're on the air. Morning, Earn. Line number two. Earn? Are you there, sir? Yes, how are you? I'm doing okay. How you doing? Earn. Yeah, that's you. Go right ahead. Yes, how are you doing, Patty? Boy? Best kind. How about you? Merry Christmas, dear. Same to you. Uh, I have a problem. Uh, I live in Portland, and uh, they just put a new pipe across the road. And uh, the pipeline out of Portland is... Uh, they, they put a new pipe in, and then I, I lost my pressure. So with the... And I phoned the council. They said phone the highways. So, like, what do I do in a case like that, sir? Well, I don't know. Why would the... So this was provincial work done on uh, the provincial no, high the, road. The highway is renewed, you know what that is. Yes, so, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, but uh, they put a new pipe in. Uh, after that, that was the, uh, the pipe. They fixed it, a black pipe, and uh, they put a clamp on it or whatever, but I got no... Uh, I got no water pressure. I don't know what no. would have changed. Pardon me? I don't know what would have changed with simply replacing an old pipe with a new pipe. But No, no, no. Uh, it came off the clamp when you put the new pipe across the road, sir. Okay. And so the end result is you lost your water pressure. Uh, yes, sir. Yes. And the uh, council in Freeland, uh, I don't know what's going on. I phoned them. They said phoned the highways in Renews. So I phoned the talk to the manager or the foreman. So something has to be done that. And what did the foreman say? Uh, he said he's going to talk to the council and he's supposed to have somebody to look at it, sir. 
Okay, so at least they're doing something as opposed to doing well, nothing. Well, they didn't do it yet, sir. That was uh, almost two weeks ago, sir. Have you called them again? Yes, sir, I did, sir. And then what? And he said to get, get back to me, but listen, Patty, I'm a resident of Ferdinand. Right? Yep. So what can you do? Uh, get my MP, uh, Bully from Torchgore, or what's his name? Uh, your, what's his name? Your federal member, or you're, you're talking about your provincial MHA, are you? Yeah. So Loyola O'Driscoll. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's what I would do. Can you get a hold of him and uh, see what's on the go? Because uh, I have to come out to St. John's and your sisters. Okay, I can do that. That's no problem. No. Do you want me name or? Well, I, you want to give me your last name too? Because I'm happy to take it. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, everybody's here but now. I'm Newfoundland level already. Well, uh, how about this, Ern? I'll simply send along your number to uh, M- Mr. O'Driscoll's office. It's just Ern at this number, and hopefully he'll give you a shout. Uh, well, uh, yes, yes, sir. I really appreciate that. Ernie Clough for Ferryland. Ernie Clough. Okay, I can do that for you, Ern. So, listen, if anyone is listening from Mr. O'Driscoll's office, we actually have a PC member in the queue. Barry Petten's coming up. Maybe Mr. Petten can also pass along to his colleague, Mr. Yeah, O'Driscoll. Yeah, I, I, like, you know, so, so who's going to pay for this? Like, who, like, you know? Well, I can't answer that question, but I can certainly no, try to get someone to help you out. You can't answer it, but you know what I mean? So somebody... I get in, like, the councils that form the highways. Form the highway, form the council. Oh, yeah, that's the circular past the buck piece of government that just happens way too often. But, Ern, I'm going to get Mr. Petten to tell uh, Loyola about this issue. I will send along an email, and if someone's listening in Mr. O'Driscoll's office, just send me an email so I can send you Ernie Close number. How's that? God love you. Merry Christmas to you. Same to you. All the best, Ern. Okay, bye-bye. So, certainly someone is listening over there. Let's go. Line number four. Let's take a moment to the PC member for Conception Bay South. He's the opposition education critic. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Good. I just uh, yeah, I heard uh, Mr. Close, so I think that message will be delivered to uh, Loyola in short order. But uh, Good. Yeah, no problem. Patty, I'm calling in uh, to discuss this release I put out, actually, uh, over the weekend. It's about the... Learning loss, I guess, is about an issue that I've spoken, me and you spoke about as well, actually, and this one is pertaining to the recent respiratory outbreak in the schools, and we found information or reports that were over 9,000 children absent daily in the month of November, which is astounding when I heard that number. I couldn't believe it. And I guess it comes back to a point that I've brought up many times, and like I said, I think me and you have discussed about it many times, the online learning option. And... Uh, I mean, we had some, you know, it's been, it's like, they're not proactive, it's a reactive, uh, as always, but this past summer they they had some public sessions or whatever, information sessions on, you know, ways forward to deal with this learning loss. I mean, you had Ontario up there, isn't that forever, right? They have their online, a virtual option in place. Now, they may have more resources, they may have more teachers, I'm not sure exactly. And I know that there's some, you know, hesitation on both sides in the province whenever you mention online learning. But, you know, when you couple this with, I mean, from someone sitting back and taking this in, you couple what's gone on in our school system over the last couple of years with COVID-19 and the amount of learning loss that's happened there, and a lot of those children are already gone on to, you know, more post-secondary and what have you. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, I think it's concerning, and, you know, and it's, uh, so, I mean, you've got all this, you know, all this mislearning. I mean, there's no replacing mislearning. I mean, you've got you to do something to fix it, fill it in. And I don't really see where you get the time to when you miss so much school time, especially like what we're in in uh, November. 
And, you know, when you couple now, I mean, recent reports, they cancelled public exams, and, I mean, and again, that would seem to be a, a joint, you know, NLTA and the district seem to be in agreement with this, which is all fine. I mean, that's their, that's their expertise. But from where I sit to, and I, you know, I talk to many parents, and I, you know, I've discussed this with many people along the way, where do, we, where do you fill in this learning loss if you're not going to have these options available, such as an online option when you're looking at the loss because of this respiratory illness we're dealing with now, and now we're dealing with, we're, we're, you know, not having not public exams, and there doesn't appear to be a backup plan in place there. And this is not new. We look at a couple of this. is really going on. It's two or three year option. And since since COVID hit in March of 2020, so it's uh, very concerning. And I think it's important to bring it to uh, your listeners' attention and to the public. Uh, it's concerning. And I think government and uh, you know, the Department of Education need to do something uh, to, to deal with this. And I think developing an online learning option would be would be something in a positive uh, direction. Well, other provinces, other jurisdictions, they looked at learning loss. And they adjusted the K-12 curriculum to reflect what was actually delivered inside the classroom. Not even when they went to fits and starts and hybrid or whatnot. I think they focused solely on what was absorbed and offered or lectured in the classroom. And then they made the required adjustment. Even just offering something in addition now is not going to deal with the learning loss that has been suffered by so many students in the past couple of years. You know, so they did a careful evaluation. I have never been able to find out not one single thing that went on in the so-called high school graduate symposium to talk about what the preparation looked like to enter into any post-secondary institution, Memorial University, for instance. I don't even know what went on there and what the conclusion was. But I do know that other provinces had a very careful look at this and did something about it. So I've brought this up countless times. I've had very little uptake on it, but this is pretty important. There's already been concern over the years where students are being moved along to the next grade when decades ago they might have been held back because they might not be up to the actual snuff of a grade six to grade se- a grade seven preparation, reading comprehension or mathematical understandings or what have you. But now when people feel like children are being moved ahead when there's some discussion that should be had about holding them back, add to this that issue, the learning loss, and we could be creating a problem which could manifest itself years down the line when it's too late, even if all of a sudden I could stay home and learn online, uh, which is a bit cumbersome for teachers to have that responsibility heaped on top of their in-class duties. But we haven't done much about it, as far as I can tell. No, and, and that's a great point you make there. You know, they put it, they, they put extra curriculum in the class to deal with. And even if that works instead of online, well, that's great too. But, like, to your point, and you're right, we've def- our students have fell behind. And ironically, Patty, you make an interesting point. It's just this other day, I was one of our staff people, I, I was back and forth texting, I said, but it's amazing, there's not so much uptake on this education issue, because I've spoken about it as well, and put out different news releases, I know you've been all over it, and I be, I'm somewhat surprised that government have made more efforts to uh, address this, and ironically, with that, the, when they've done that information session, I thought, I, th- I just thought they'd be open to. I probably I'd have an opportunity as, as the education critic and whoever to probably sit in on you know listen to listen to some of the discussion. But that was closed to us. So I spoke to the deputy minister t- at the time, and it was clearly indicated that, that we were not you know welcome there to be something in the future. That this was something you know great. This was the beginning of a bigger plan, and I've heard I've heard nothing since. And there we are now in December. So it's uh, it's something that I, I'm at a loss as well. And I think that our students are really going to this this stuff. 
12 years, almost like an interest rate cut, if you ask me. You don't see it immediately. You see it six months to a year down the road or two years. You've seen the same thing with our education system, and I think it's very concerning. And it's very troubling because we don't hear I'm the minister. I never hear tell the minister these days. There's no reaction to any public commentary on this, and there's no feeling as a parent, of, you get parents of children that are struggling and they're looking for options and there's no one talking about it and it's, kind of, it's really concerning. I think it's long overdue. The government needs to uh, address this issue. I think so. I, I sometimes feel like I'm a little bit alone in the conversation regarding education <laughs> because I'll say this for the upteenth time. When polled about what voters care about, it's jobs, the economy, taxes, health care, uh, the environment, criminal justice, and then somewhere down the line it's education. And in fact, if we all, even if you don't have children in the K-12 system, all of our long-term prosperity lies in a well-educated public. If we thought that education was the most important thing, we'd do a better job with the economy and jobs and health care and taxes and criminal justice and the environment. We just would. I mean, so we kind of... You know, I know the immediacy of concerns, and, you know, they all comment from Tim Russert. It's about the economy, stupid. Yes, mm. it is about the economy, but the economy can only be improved and to grow if we're all really well-educated. Well so, you know, it's just a little rejigging thoughts there. Yeah, no, you know, I agree, Patty. It's the most precious resource, and it's something that we need to pay a lot more attention to than what we're doing, because, like I say, oil is an end date, but our, our youth and our future and our education, they are our future. They're going to be looking after all of us. And running, you know, running the running the provinces, running the world uh, in a few years' time, and we need to be able to protect that because I mean it's a very valuable resource, and uh, it's something that like government, I think, need to pay a lot more attention to it. And I couldn't agree with you more. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Barry. Okay, Patty. Thank you. Bye bye. Look, and I'm not pretending that anything's easy in, in education, right? It's not. And there's nothing easy in healthcare. There's nothing easy in just about everything we touch in every uh, government department. I know there was lots of confusion about whether or not children should be in school and the whole thought that the uh, last thing to happen should be closing the schools and the first thing to happen should be reopening them. Some students struggled with online learning. Some students struggled with the hybrid model where you're in class Monday, Wednesday, Friday this week, Tuesday, Thursday next week. I get all that. But to, at some point, have a real careful review of what the curriculum looks like because you know full well there was a plenty of students coming, say, just pick a grade, coming from grade 6, moving into grade 7, that in years past they would not be considered fully prepared for grade 7, but there they do. There they find themselves in grade 7. Did the curriculum change? Not to my knowledge. Let's go ahead and take a break. Oh, here we go. So the emergency room at the uh, Newhook Medical Facility in Whitburn, emergency services not in place again this week. We're told they're going to start again next week until we're told next week that they're not. <laughs> Whitbourne Mayor's Hilda Whalen. She's in the queue. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number five. Say good morning to the Mayor Whitburn, her worship, Hilda Whalen. Mayor Whalen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. As you said, nothing changed here in regards to our clinic here. still closed. So get that notice this, every week. Is this 25 weeks? Oh, my God. It's been about eight months, I suppose. Yeah. Wow. Losing time is that long. Now, I call, one of the main reasons I call today is regards to that 811 line. Now, uh, to pay them more than they are the doctors, you know, it's kind of insulting. And now we're going to have to deal with the retention, not only the recruitment because that seems to be becoming an issue. 
And also in regards to the 811 line, we have an aging population here. And how many do you know? I mean, I consider myself Cupid computer stupid really but uh, there are a lot of people that that don't have computers the older generation don't operate them and then again we have from here to Greens Harbor you got no signal so how many places on the island are like that so the the virtual uh, uh, it is a, a good additive and some of the young people might say yeah and certain people would use it but there's no no replacement for family doctors. They're the ones that refer them to specialists, etc. And they have to bring their pay up or they're not going to recruit them. They're going to leave, especially under the, the stress now that they've had. This is this is worse than it ever was with, with everything closing down and, and all the stress being on all the doctors themselves. We have uh, coming in now, I see they came in from Nova Scotia to offering our uh, nurses and uh, some of our medical students to, you know, better pay, better this, better that. What that should have happened then, should another team from government would should have went down and said, don't mind them, I'll give you better than them, I'll give you this, this, and this. Uh, nurses, uh, uh, not just nurses, they're the paramedics, they're the res- respiratory, lab techs. I mean, we are so down on medical staff now. It's unbelievable. And these young people, they're going to where they get the best pay. They're not usually got a family. They're not tied to anyone. So that, that that's an issue in regards to them leaving. I think that the, that we absolutely need to go to the university. It's a public university. Uh, about Three hundred million this year. How many millions have we paid over the years? And I think that now that this province is in a crisis, that we should go to the to the university government should, and to tell them next year take only Newfoundland students in the medical field. That's not a big ask considering the crisis that we're in, and. Uh, because there's, a, there's going to be a long time before we can actually get nurses from everywhere else. Now, someone said, well, you know, it's the same everywhere. I said, no, it's, it's not quite the same. I said, Toronto needs 10,000. We only need 1,000. Yeah. The, the, okay. true, the true problem here is they're not paying enough. Well, at the, you know, I, I get that sentiment. But for some, it's not really all simply about the rate of pay. I mean, look no further than the fact that we dangled all kinds of incentives in front of uh, nurses on the casual list to become permanent full-time, and very few took it up. So with the university, I know they expanded seats in the nursing school. Newfoundlanders sit in 65 of the 80 seats in the med school. But we simply don't graduate enough anyway. Like, we have a shortage of respiratory therapists, and that's had huge complications. Uh for the obvious reasons, once again. Then we've had a shortage of radiation therapists, which means we've shut down one of the four suites at the Bliss Center, when we only graduated 12 of them last year. So how can we be graduating so few when these problems have been bubbling for years? It didn't just happen overnight. And I think even the bigger one, Hill, is we might be creating an atmosphere where even if we expand the number of seats, people hear the stories. People see what's going on. How attractive is it to want to be a healthcare professional at this moment if you're, say, a high school or thinking about what you want to do when you graduate from high school? Now they hear the stories, they're like, man, I'm not doing that. 
So we've got Absolutely. to figure this out. And, you know, expanding the number of seats is important, but you also have to hope that we fill those seats and we can retain some healthcare professionals that come from abroad. I mean, look no further than if you go to the Health Sciences Center, you know full well that some of the doctors you see have come from somewhere else, whether it be to train at Memorial University or have since come after they went to med school, wherever that was. So there's lots of moving parts in the inside of healthcare, that's for sure. But what's happening in your community is really quite something. Every week you're told next week, then next week you're told, no, maybe next week. And so it's a never-ending cycle of delay. Because they have no, they have no doctors. I say they haven't placed a half dozen yet. They've got the people in the queue. They're working to people. They've got applications. They're working on it, working on it. Now, one thing I will say, and I will commend the, the government for, is putting in place or, or taking out of place the rules that were restricting foreign doctors, because that was a big played a big part in the in our doctors not being here uh, right now I mean we need to put more money on the table someone is not going to up write their family or themselves and come here to Newfoundland for the same amount of money because the situation has been become so desperate now we have to pay more and of all these incentives that's been put on the table we're the doctors. They're not there. And it, it is they are making it more attractive to set up the new practice, 100,000 or 150, whatever. Nurses, the same thing, signing on. But we have to get, get them up to the point where we can say Newfoundland is the best paid. It's the best promise to live in. We need to advertise it. This is a very long-term action. To get these these uh, staff, nurse practitioners, respiratory spouses, lab technicians, paramedics, name them. This, they're not coming overnight. And uh, our, of course, our, our always our greatest need is the doctor itself. But the doctors themselves can't operate without without this this team behind them. And you know, over the years, we've wasted a lot of money. And I think this is probably the only time that I have seen it where someone could, that the government could put a stack of money on the table and say, this is for health care to get our doctors and nurses and get our hospitals and clinics straightened out. I think this is the first time that it could do that and not get any flyback because everybody knows that what it's going to take to get these doctors and nurses here. And honestly, if when these new incentives that Fury put in place, if this had been done 10 years ago and improved upon, we wouldn't be in the mess we got now. He is the first one who ever put anything on the table. The College of Physicians and Surgeons, there's like they, they were operating uh, within themselves, like 100 doctors, like 20, uh, not 23, 43 doctors were uh, lost their license because they didn't renew them by January 1st, right in, in the pandemic when, you know, I guess that wasn't the top thing on their mind. And 60-something, they just didn't renew their license, guess they went somewhere else. But that information was not relayed to either the CEO or the government because I've asked them on a virtual meeting. He said, we don't have anything to do with recruitment. I said, you do. You restrict it, right? You've got this law in place. You've got to make, you got to get together with government and fix this out, right? 
But now he did he did address that, and I think they may be getting a little easier now to get them through. But we have always had in our clinic in Whitburn, if we had seven, five of them were foreign. Always. And when they put that in place since 2019, they would put five a year. They would take five only. They would put them into the university. Now, when they came out, when they they finished what they did, their training that they required, they weren't guaranteed to stay. Now they can go anywhere in Canada. So how many doctors did we get from physicians and surgeons in the last four or five years? That has been a big decline in our doctors. I'm sorry, I didn't understand that part. How many doctors did we get from the college? Of physicians no, and not surgeons? From, not, not from the college. The, uh, the college of, uh, not the college of physicians and surgeons. The, the, oh, med the school. licensing body. The licensing body that oh, we have. That is the college. Yes. Well, they were taking seven a year. Before that, we had doctors to come in. They worked beside another doctor. And, uh, you know, I guess if they were deficient in any area, they would be notified or, or, you know, asked to do a little study on this or a little work on it. But they put in place a new rule where they're only taking seven a year. Before that, we were taking lots more. And and all of a sudden, we since since 21, since 19, we've only licensed uh, 21 foreign doctors. And how many of them are here? The CEO of Eastern Health, I asked him how many he didn't know. I said, you should know. I said, that's what you're getting paid for. The minister should have known. I said, we lose 100 doctors and nobody bothered no- the, to notify the minister. I mean, that's the problem. Nobody is working together. There was a CEO, ECEOs, there's college physicians and surgeons, the university and the minister. They should have been all working in, together and aware of going on. Doctors are bleeding out and everybody is all happy in their whole little little circle. And this is what we end up with. Okay. I so appreciate I the time. They have a lot of work ahead of them and, they, and, and a lot of money to be put on the table because, like someone said to me, it's not all money. Overworked and underpaid is money. Appreciate the time, Mary Whalen. Thanks a lot. Thank you a lot. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, let's go to line number one. Rob, you're on the air. Uh, happy uh, Monday. Same to you. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Hopefully, this will be a little bit of a lighter fare. Sounds good. Um, so, um, uh, Cora's on Kenmount Road. We've talked before. I, I've done the, uh, I work with a company. We've done the Newfound, we've done the uh, financial literacy tour. We talked about that a couple of times. Oh, yeah. yeah. So in conjunction with us and Cora's on uh, Kenmount Road, we're actually bringing, we're, we're lucky that we're able to do this. We're actually getting this late Santa, Mrs. Claus, and a couple of elves to come down. And they're going to be there from 11 to 1. And they're taking photos with anybody that wants a photo and all that Santa is asking is for a donation to the food bank. And, uh, you know, this day and age, you know, sometimes, sometimes Santa can be a little pricey to get a photo with, you know, depending and, 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 and for the people to come in and be able to get it. And you know what, if you haven't got a non-perishable food item or you don't have a cash donation, Santa will still take a picture with you. That's beautiful. Santa's busy guy this time of year. So is it 11 to one today? 
No, Saturday. Oh. I apologize. I didn't say Saturday. <laughs> yeah, Saturday. Coming up Saturday, Cora is right here on Kenmount Road, close on where Montana's is, between Montana's, say, and Hickman Motors, uh, Hickman Chrysler. So Absolutely. So that's great for you to be doing this. I know we had a, a bar owner last Friday call and say they were offering some free photos with Santa. So that, that's lovely because you're right. It can be pretty pricey and some lengthy waits in lines and malls and what have you so coming up this saturday 11 to 1 at chorus santa mrs claus some of the elves so this is uh, being brought to you by newfound uh, wealth advisors uh yeah in conjunction with uh with chorus okay. and uh, um, a lovely lady named irene and there's always room on santa's knee for you patty so uh you know we're really hoping that you're going to get in and get your you know, get your list and, and tell them because you're always on the on the nice list. So, well, Santa's going to need some pretty sturdy legs for me to be sitting on his lap. <laughs> he's been working out. Yeah, he's been good wor- to Listen, hear. I'm telling you, he's got to bend down, pick up them elves all the time. I suppose. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, he's in training. He's got a long uh, training, night ahead yeah. of him. So, Rob, thanks for doing this, and uh, hopefully, folks will be able to take advantage. Of. Please do, if possible, bring along a cash donation or a non-perishable that will end up at a food bank, which is much needed. Appreciate Every the time and good on you. All right. Take care, buddy. You too, Rob. All the best. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, John has an interesting question about why there's no foot patrols here, and I, I assume that means RNC presence on foot in town. Then we're going to talk about Danielle Smith, interestingly enough, and Paul Toomey, I guess an update coming from their fundraiser at the Eating Disorder Foundation. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, let us go. Line number seven. Good morning, Colin. You're on the air. Line number seven. Good morning, Good morning to you. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? I'm doing top shelf. Thanks. How you doing? Pretty good, thanks. Wanted to talk about the Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Okay. And uh, during the passing of the uh, Sovereignty Act in that province on Thursday morning, last Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, she made the uh, statement that, and I quote. The way our country works is that we are a federation of sovereign, independent jurisdictions. They, meaning Ottawa, are one of those signatories to the Constitution, and the rest of us, as signatories to the Constitution, have a right to exercise our sovereign powers in our own areas of jurisdiction, end quote. Apparently, apparently the, the Premier of Alberta believes that Alberta is a sovereign, independent jurisdiction, and so are all the other Canadian provinces and territories. Being sovereign and independent means you're a country. Yep. It's a pretty distinct misunderstanding of the federa- of the Confederation. It's a it's a blatant and profound ignorance. You know what that, I that think is. ultimately here, Colin? This is a political trap. You know, I don't know if it ever even passes the constitutionality law test here. I don't know. It doesn't look like it. It's been balked back so many times. I mean, at one point they were talking about refusing federal judgments, or, or, uh, pardon me, judicial rulings, which come on. Then talk about not enforcing the law that they don't like within their province, come on. Then talking about the cabinet having widespread powers to enact legislation without taking it to the floor of the assembly, oh my. So right now it is as much about... Trapping the Prime Minister and trapping Rachel Notley as it is about anything, I'll say, legitimate. Her Saturday morning uh, radio appearance, someone sent me uh, some snippets from it. Uh, The first talk about the importance of the Sovereignty Act was to talk about plastic straws. Like, what are you talking about? Then there's the concept that they've had someone redraw the map 
of Alberta and Saskatchewan that has it a quarter now to Tidewater in BC. I, I mean, what does that even mean? You know what that actually says? They're acknowledging the fact that this whole bit about separation doesn't work. It's a landlocked country, or landlocked province, pardon me. So they're redrawing the map to lend some credence to this concept of Alberta separating. And if your argument in support of Danielle Smith is, well, it's good enough for Quebec, that doesn't mean anything's going uh, properly or appropriately in Quebec either. So, you know, I just don't get the whole business. Now, it's important also to add that a very minuscule uh, portion of the Alberta population has voted for Ms. Smith at this point. She hasn't gone to a general. There was actually a split inside her own party. It was, I think, 27-7 uh, was the final vote inside the UCP. So this is... Uh, no, the UCP voted in full in favor. The NDP voted against us. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. You, you, may, be, uh, you may be right that there is an overwhelming political... Um, it sure feels like it. it. <laughs> yeah, she, she may be she may be baiting the federal government and Trudeau in particular into a fight. Absolutely, uh, but it doesn't do away with the fact that uh, you know last week she uh, walked up to the prime minister figuratively, of course, and kicked him in his prairie oysters. Now he turns around and says in response, "I'm not looking for a fight. It's too late. Your prairie oysters are in your net now." Yeah, I don't know what the appropriate comeback should be from whether it be the Prime Minister or anybody else, but this has been part and parcel of politics. The municipalities will fight with the province, the province will fight with Ottawa. There's always a victory there. You know, the whole fighting Alberta and the fighting Newfoundlander, you know, it's next level government's uh, problem. They created it, they should solve it. There's a political victory available there, and that's really what this feels like to me, the whole Sovereignty Act. Like, imagine if it had come uh, forward in the form that it first took, Ignoring federal George uh, judicial rulings, ignoring uh, federal crimes that have to be prosecuted and investigated in your province, allowing for the cabinet to be the be-all and end-all. No votes, no debate on the floor of the House of Assembly, very much akin to orders in council, but even worse. So it's really wild what's going on out there. Yeah, I, I think the the, uh, the press in Alberta and, and the national press, too, should uh, like feel her out on uh, her, her idea of Ottawa is not, is not really a national government. What else does she think is not national? What about the Supreme Court of Canada? What's their role in the whole judiciary? If they're not the top court in the country, what are they? You know, what about our armed forces? If they're not a national military to, to uh, protect the whole country and and the provinces and territories within the country, what are they? What about our immigration? What about our border controls? Canada Border Services Agency, what do they do? You know, and, and what else, uh, it, which, which is in federal jurisdiction, that she doesn't think belongs to federal jurisdiction, or is, I don't really know what she thinks. I'm trying to live rent-free inside Danielle Smith's head, and it's kind of uh, giving me a big headache, you know? Yeah, look, I mean, is the relationship between the provinces, the territories, and Ottawa exactly how it should be? Absolutely not. I've, I understand and agree with that thought. But, of course, there's so many gross exaggerations about how hurtful the federal government has been to Alberta. I mean, I have a really soft spot in my heart for Alberta. I lived in Alberta. I met and married my wife in Alberta. My boys are born in Alberta. I had a great life when I lived in that province. But some of this stuff is just sort of wacky, you know. And, again, does Quebec get too lenient to treatment? I think so, yes. You know, whether we talk about revenue coming from hydro and or yep. the break they get on carbon tax and or some of the additional protections they get that have not been afforded to other provinces, I agree with that comment, and I think that relationship needs to change as well. But that doesn't mean that this is appropriate or even sensible. I wonder what it would also mean if it's not 
just a political tool, which I very much think it is. What will this look like and feel like for investment in the province? I mean, you know, it doesn't, like if it was my money and my business, it doesn't really look like a great place to park your money uh, at this moment in time. And the whole bit about everyone killed the oil industry, record production, record revenue, record profit this year, the highest in the history of the country. That doesn't really smell like death, and if it does, give me a dose of it. Yeah, she she seems to think uh, that, that the Canadian provinces and territories are a collection of independent sovereign nations, uh, much along the lines of the European Union model. You know, you had the Germans, the French, and the others, which are, which are sovereign, obviously. Uh, they they got together and decided to uh, adopt a common currency for trade throughout that European Union. They have a European Central Bank. They had the head of the uh, European Union is in Brussels. You know, and I understand that, but th- these were sovereign nations first and then they decided in the interest of uh you know european security and collective trade and things like that to to form a a, a political um, an ec- economic union but that's not what we have here that's not what happened in 1867 with the british north america act and smith is uh as, as the premier of a province this is a basic civics lesson that that you learn when you're 10 12 years old in, in middle school right yeah, uh, well, and someone asked me earlier, and this was regarding gun control legislation, whether or not I've been to England in the last number of years. I was actually there the summer. I was actually in London the day that uh, Boris Johnson stepped down, which was uh, curious. And I tell you what, they were so badly bamboozled uh, with their Brexit vote that I guarantee you the English are, generally speaking, not pleased with how this is all unfolded. It's not working Absolutely. the way they were told it should or could. Uh, I appreciate the time uh, this morning, Colin. I'm late for the news. Thank you, Patty. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, okay. Uh, appreciate the patience there. Paul, he'll give us an update when we return. Then there's all sorts of interesting play, interesting topics. Yeah, the foot patrol is there. People who lost their jobs. Due to what? We'll find out. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Say good morning to the Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation, Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Yeah, and I apologize because I said last week it would probably be the last time I talked to you before Christmas, but I thought worthwhile to call this morning on on uh, a couple of uh, issues. Uh, I mentioned last week about coping during the holidays uh, with an eating disorder, as it is a very challenging time of year, and I just wanted to remind people that we have and are still adding uh, new resources to our website regularly, so uh, I think it's a great spot to visit, edfnl.ca, to to get information. I want to thank your newsroom, actually, for picking up on uh, on the conversation you and I had on on Friday and uh, made a news story out of it this morning, so we're getting the message out uh, twice in one day. Good. Um, the second thing I wanted to talk about was our Christmas flyaway sweep. We talked about it last week, and the response immediately following our conversation was, uh, well, simply amazing. I think uh, by the end of the day, we'd racked up about 16 additional tickets sold, and we're now down in the low 20s. So uh, we have until uh, Thursday evening to sell tickets. So uh, 
Anybody who still wants to get one, $49 uh, for one chance out of 149 to win uh, two economy class tickets, Air Canada, scheduled destinations, North America, which includes Hawaii, Mexico, and the Caribbean, plus a one-night stay at the Comfort Airport Inn. So great prize, uh, great odds of winning, and uh, certainly the money that we raise and those last 20-odd tickets can mean the difference between us being able to offer our emotion coaching uh, three-hour sessions uh, several times next year. So the support will definitely be uh, be worth it, and uh, we'd appreciate uh, people ringing our phones off the wall again today. Let's hope that's exactly what happens. I think we've had some success the last couple of times you've called on it. So Absolutely. the prize, we've had some great success. Glad to hear. So the prize is solid, and so hopefully uh, people will not only pay the money for the ticket, which I think is $49, yeah. and uh, win a prize. But we all know the work that the Eating Disorder Foundation has been able to do and things that you've accomplished over the years. And I think the list of the accomplishments are quite long and really critically important, even if you look at something as fundamental as inpatient service for those suffering with an eating disorder. So uh, good luck with this, Paul. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Betty. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go to line number two. John, you're on the air. Hi, Petty. Good morning. Morning to you. I'm calling to ask you a question, if you can get the question. I want you to know how come the police force are refusing to do foot patrol in the capital city of St. John's, and no one answers it. Well, who's, who refused? It was refused. The police force. you got a police force here doing foot patrol in the capital city? No one. No one's doing foot patrol. Numerous people have asked them, Okay. And they just ignore them. Yeah, my question was, like, for instance, had you gone to Chief Roach's office or one of the inspectors and asked that question and, and were told no? That's all I meant by the question. Yes, we did. We did. Several people asked him, and he laughed at them and said we don't need them. He mocked them and belittled them. And the union rep, Dr. Ron Lufthansa-Stabler, should be explaining to the public how come he's refusing foot patrol. Well, Maybe they need a new union. The union, Maybe their union is incompetent. But the union would have no authority to institute a foot patrol, though. That's an no. operational issue that would come directly from the chief, right? Yeah, the union operates this show. The union is incompetent. Yeah, but what does the union have to do with the lack of a foot patrol? Because, like I said, they don't have the authority to do anything like that. Oh, yes, they do. They have the authority to get anything. They're an incompetent union. Union's supposed to speak up for their employees. They're not speaking up. And for the question, was he afforded or left it? Who? The union rep. Uh, I don't know. I assume there's an election in any formalized association. I don't know if they even call themselves a union as opposed to an association. Isn't that what they refer to themselves as? Well, they call themselves a union. I'm presuming if it's the union, it's supposed to be an election. But I never heard of an election with them. Well, are you a member of the force by chance? No, no. I've been a member in an international union, but... And also, who's who's? Is it the, the minister of labor to clean up the corrupt unions down here? Is that his job? Say that part again for me, John. Like in the union, where I'm in, uh, in the international, a lot of people got caught stealing. When you get in the union, do you think he owns the union? But the international got to come in and fire them. In some places, to go to jail. But a lot of people here in the union got caught stealing, and nothing happens to them. In what union? Several unions, the attorney generals that was in the reports, people got caught stealing. People got caught stealing at the Ron Newfoundland Stabler Union. 
nobody goes to jail. Nobody cleans up the union. Is it the Minister of Labor's job to clean up the dirty teeth unions? Well, if it comes down to uh, crime, it's up to law enforcement to do something about it. But where's, when's the story about uh, someone belonging to the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary Association stealing from themselves? I don't, I'm not familiar with that one. Oh, you, know, uh, you don't know the story where he went and stole the money out of the safe? You mean the $13,000 I went missing at headquarters? Oh, yeah. Did anybody go to jail for that? No. Do, do they know who did it? Do you know who did it? They told everybody the cameras was uh, broken in the, in the room. But they forgot all the cameras in the parking lot. They forgot all the cameras that goes into the doors. Do you know who was working? you know who was working? But anyway, got the point. <clears throat> they should be on explaining why or they refuse some foot patrol. But nobody explains it. But I don't care. I just wanted a question. That's it. And where would the foot patrols be most appropriate? In the city of St. John's. Yeah, I know. St. John's got more mental illness on the streets than ever before. They got more homeless on the street than ever before. Did you read the paper during the weekend? Yeah. Some guy phoned the cops. He said he seen guys beating up and the cops never came. Yeah, I mean, I hear stories seen, like that seen, all the time. I've seen, yeah, I've I seen that myself five times during this summer. Five times. Cops never came. Cops knows. He should have foot patrol. <clears throat> it's a capital city, and he refuses foot patrol. So, and the union member is being paid by the taxpayers, and he's refusing to explain to the public why are they refusing foot patrol. I don't get it. Well, there's only one person that will be making those decisions, though. Not the constable on the beat or part of the traffic enforcement division or forensics or K-9 unit. It's the chief. Well, uh, the union is getting paid by the taxpayers. The union is supposed to protect these officers, but they're not. Like, the union is refusing to put police cameras in their police cars. Their union is refusing that. I don't, I don't understand. All the police force in the world got cameras in their front cars, but they're refusing it here. I don't understand that. Cameras that point out of the car or into the car? <clears throat> Either boat. Boat. And they're denying them. Yeah, as said, they're putting officers on the street. The officers are getting solid basically every week. They're getting ramnet every week, and they're refusing to give them cameras. That's an incompetent union. I've been in a union for over 35 years in an international union. That wouldn't happen in a real union. They're incompetent. They need another leader. Think about it. They're sending police on the street without cameras in their car. They're getting ran and salted every day, and they're not doing nothing. Anyway, that's my story for them. And another story before I go, I want to talk about Nelcor, if I can. Okay. I'll get my two minutes of fame. Did Nelcor ever patent anything? Patent anything? Yeah. Not that I no. know of. Well, what's, no, they never. What's the quite? What does that have to do with anything? Patents? Right now? Do they make anything? Do they make barbecues? Do they make dolls houses? No. Wow. That's one hundred ten percent corporate welfare. You took the money from the poor. That money they took could have went in the cameras in the car. Have a lovely day. Okay, John. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, yeah, foot patrols. I mean, I I think the 
biggest problem that the RNC has with coverage and police presence is the numbers of cops. I mean, they seem pretty strapped, if, uh, what I, from what I can tell anyway. And operational decisions, of course, belong in the chief's office and amongst the leadership, whether it be inspectors or the deputy chief and what have you. But the concept of cameras is the, like, I don't know, I didn't know there was no dash cams pointed out inside a police car. But then that conversation, of course, extends itself to body cameras. Nothing quite like the video to tell the tale. So it wouldn't be he said, she said type of stories any further. We'd go to the tape. Now, there's always going to be some legitimate privacy concerns. There's going to be absolutely discussions have to be had about how the video is stored, who has access to the video. But there's far too many instances where we know that there's been some interaction between the general public and police where we don't really know exactly what happened because the civilian might say one thing and the police say the exact opposite. So a body camera, of course, utilized by law enforcement agencies around the world, but not here. And I think there's a fair discussion to be had on that front, uh, for sure. And I know that I'm probably in the minority, but bring on some speed cameras and bring on some red light cameras. You drive around St. John's or anywhere in the metro region, I would suggest today, and just keep an eye on how many times someone runs a red light. Well, I keep an eye on it just because it's one of my peeves these days. It happens all the time. Absolutely, literally all the time. And yes, I know you need a front license plate to be uh, using speed cameras effectively. And yes, it might be someone driving your car. But any opportunity to slow people down without the need of a police cruiser, probably a pretty good idea. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. All right, let's go. Line number one, Rod, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, how are you doing today? Not bad, I suppose. You? No, not too bad. Just good. sitting in the house here, keeping my feet up, staying warm. Had a boy. <laughs> See, Patty, I, I listen to the healthcare uh, talks and that on and off, and that when I get on uh, listen on the radio there, and I know there's been a shortage prior to COVID nineteen, but here's a question that I have not heard, uh, at least not since I've been listening to some of the stuff. How many healthcare workers, uh, doctors and nurses, maybe extended care workers, or even uh, home support workers that left their job or got laid off or may have got fired because they refused to take the COVID shot. Now, since the mandate is not, since the mandate is over now, I'd like to know if there's been any reach out to some of these people that have been laid off, that may have quit their job or may have got fired to come back to work. Good question. I don't know. There is one person who sends me emails on a fairly frequent basis, and this person was a registered nurse and refused to get the vaccination and consequently uh, lost the job at that moment in time. He has told me that the regional health authority that he worked for did, after the mandates were over, offer him his job back, which he did not take, and he didn't elaborate as to why he did not take it. Maybe he's moved on to do something else. I asked him, but he didn't reply to that particular email. The department said and people could take it for what it's worth, that the uptake on vaccination inside the world of healthcare was, if I remember correctly, 95 or 96%. So I don't know how many people that uh, comes out to with who lost their job and whether or not any of them were brought back onto the payroll, but oh, I suppose that's a number we can find. Yeah, it would be interesting to find that all because I've, I've read that there was up to about 10,000 healthcare workers across Canada that lost their jobs. You know, that's a lot of people. 
Yeah, I mean, there was a number that came out of Quebec that was in the neighborhood of 4,000 people alone in that province, but that number was before the mandates kicked in in full, so I assume some of those people probably did indeed eventually get vaccinated. I don't know what the final tally is across the country. You have you just told me 10,000. I, I don't know. I haven't seen that number. Provincially, of course, it wouldn't be... It'd be in the magnitude of dozens. I don't know if it would have been more than... a couple of hundred possibly high watermark but i'll see if the department can provide that number because yeah, it's curious cause, yeah because even a couple of hundred people would make a difference absolutely you know that uh because uh as the aging group of people get older and older we do need more workers here in this province the biggest group of people in canada were born between 1946 to 1964 and that's the baby boomers and the baby boomers now, like I'm a baby boomer, and we are getting older. We are getting uh, into these high ages where we do need a lot of health care and that because uh, as you do old, your body breaks down and, and it's just the way your life is. Absolutely. So, um, and, of course, then you have to factor in what the birth rate was during the baby boomer generation. It's nowhere near that. In this province, the death rate doubles the birth rate. That's an issue. I mean, part of that is an argument for immigration because you can't force people to have babies. So no. there's a lot to what you're saying. Uh, but now that you've put that in my mind about the rehiring numbers, I'll see if I can find out. And yeah, of that course, would be great. Yeah, no I, problem. You know, I've been thinking about that for some time, and I kept putting it off now I'm going to afford them today so so I did <laughs> yeah and I also am trying to find out if there's any final tally about how many healthcare workers have been recruited in the last 12 months period and maybe some specifics like the effort that they put in in India trying to recruit registered nurses I'd like to have that breakdown yeah. just for context just so we can see whether or not these incentives are actually working that would be great yeah let's see what I can do right on thanks Patty thanks a lot Rod all the best bye okay bye bye yeah, so those bunch, what have the recruitment incentives, how have they worked? Give us some specific numbers. And whether it be the specifics about how many nurses were recruited in, in India. We didn't even know if there was a goal number in mind. The Registered Nurses Union says that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 registered nurses vacancies in the province, but at the exact same time. And I think Rod is fair to say that an aging population, and I hope to age a little further, uh, as we get older, some of our health care needs expand. Uh, I think people would agree with that in large part. But curiously, there's more doctors working in the province now than ever. What we don't really fully understand is how many of those doctors have a full patient roster, are actually actively practicing in their discipline, or are researching, or are working part-time, or whatever the case may be, because something doesn't add up there. More doctors than ever, we're told, in the province, but yet we've got 125,000-ish without a family doctor, for instance. So, okay, let's go to line number, line number what, David? You pick them. Line number two, Todd, you're on the air. Hi, Todd. Bum, 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 bum. Todd hello. on. Yes, hello, Todd. Yeah. Hello. Yes. Hello. Go ahead. I'm not reading them. I'm not reading them either. I'm talking. Todd, line two, yeah. you're on the air. Patty. Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> uh, you're talking about cameras in cop cars. How many how many taxis don't have cameras now? I don't know. They, they all got them. I would imagine it would be pretty popular, both pointing in and out. Yes. So why don't a cop have them? I didn't know they didn't, why, to be honest. 
Okay, good enough. That's all I want to know. Taxi got to have them, but a cop don't. Is it mandated by the taxi companies that they have to have cameras, or do they do it for their own uh, uh, safety no and security? I I don't know. Right, that could be safety. I mean, if I was a cabbie, not only <clears throat> pardon me, would I want one pointing out just to capture whatever the dash cam can capture, you know, with someone coming at me or some traffic incident or what have you, but yeah. one pointed in and being downloaded constantly. Is a certainly a surefire way to protect yourself as a cab driver. Oh yes, you know it is. Well, you know, like you're talking about body cameras. Now I'm not going to get into it, but many years ago I got picked up for impaired, and I was into the police station, and the cop was beating my head off the concrete wall, and his buddy said, "Well, geez, you can't forget that," and he stopped, and I never pursued it. So I'm just saying, body cameras, cameras might work. I think body cameras are certainly a discussion worth having. I know they tried it up in well, somewhere in Labrador, maybe Happy Valley Goose Bay, and the privacy yeah, commissioner, yeah. yeah, the privacy commissioner said no because there was an issue with how it was stored and who had access to footage and what have you. But we've had a lot of stories in this province regarding interaction with law enforcement that could be settled much easier if there was body cam footage. What about that? Ontario and all the other provinces that had it? I don't think every law enforcement agency in Ontario has it, no? No? No, I don't think so. I only wanted to put it out to you. You can check, see if CDY, Jiffy, whoever. I know Newfound got them all. Yeah, I mean, that should be no problem. I know some of the boys at the various cab companies. Well, you're like myself. You get taxis every, you know, a good bit, so. Every now and then. Yeah. Good enough, then. Thanks a lot, Todd. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Now, in the world of cabs, there is... Also, a conversation that's being had about some ride-sharing applications coming to town like Lyft or Uber. There's another person I know who's out there trying to uh, test drive their app for ride-sharing. The province and the city are on board-ish, but there's got to be some moves made legislatively regarding the fact that the ride-sharing drivers are going to have to have a Class 4 license and have the same type of insurance coverage that uh, limos and taxis carry themselves. So does that make it as attractive for some potential Uber drivers out there? Because even when you just talk about tax insurance, you know full well that some of the reduction in the number of cabs on the road is because of the cost of operating, notably gasoline and insurance, which was off the charts. They all fall into, what's that category of insurance? It's not called default, is it, Dave? That category of insurance that the cabbies fell into? Uh Something like that. Anyway, we'll figure it out. How are we doing on the phone, David? Let's take a break. When we come back, Selena's there. Uh, good conversation to be had about detox. And then plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number five. Selena, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. How are you at? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Oh, I'm not too bad. Um, I just wanted to come in and talk about uh, the lack of facilities available for people for detox, mental health, and addiction services. I'm well aware that apparently money went somewhere to pay for extra. Uh, personally, um, I know in and out of mental health, addiction, and therapy um, in Metro and around the island, and I have not been able to get any help, and I have family members and close friends are in very desperate situations, 
um, trying to get detoxed. They don't have IVs. Um, they're telling you can't detox at home because you can die. But then they're telling you to go home and just deal with it yourself. So it would be nice to know where all the money went. And like I said, I've been through every single eight years, Patty, going through. And it's like a clock from 12 to 12. And I always end up at 12. And I'm trying the best I can. And I'm not the only one. And I've been trying to try to help my other friends. And nobody will help us. Because why? Because we're degenerates. Uh, like you have to make money, you have to be rich to get help. Is anybody getting it? Can there are people getting help? You know, like for instance, to get into Humberward out in Cornerbrook or around. I think it's in Cornerbrook. Uh, there's a long wait I've list. I've been there. Okay, I've been there. All I've right. been there three times in the last. Five. I'm sorry, I didn't say the full word. I, I've been there a few times in the last, say, 15, 20 years. Okay. I, I, it's, a, it's a concrete building. It's like the HMP. It's horrible. And I tried to get in last year, and they're not even offering IVs. Now, anybody knows what detox is. You can't hold water when you're detoxing. You can't keep anything in your body. If you don't have an IV... There's, you know, there's no point in going. So they're pretty much telling me, just go home and keep drinking. And so, I, you know, is it, and I don't want to be at it, right? I'm trying the best I can, man. It's been eight years, and I've been around the circle, and they throw all this money in the mental health and addictions. Where is it? Because channels shut down. I used to go there every day. No more. Where's the money? They put one more person on the warm line. Where am I supposed to go now? And now I can't go to detox because they won't give me an IV. Okay. And you can look that up yourself, Patty. You can call Lumberwood, and they'll tell you. You can go in for detox. You won't even get an IV out of it. And how the hell are you going to get better if you're dehydrated? You're going to die. Okay. So there are some other options available, though, right, beyond Humberwood. Like there's the Grace Center out in Harbor Grace. There's a recovery center that's operated by Eastern Health. Have you tried any other of these outlets? I'm happy to try to give you some contact info. Um, I don't know. I've tried so many. I don't know if I did them or not. I know I did one of them that you just said, but um, I had a bad accident. I can't read or write it very good, so I'm going to have to get my man to write it down. Give me a second. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it, Patty. Do you uh, use a computer by chance? Uh, no, I live off grid. Okay. So, well, uh, that's where it sent me. <laughs> I just can't be around anybody anymore. You know, and everything is it's, it's agoraphobia thing, and I just, you know, I work construction for a very long time. And, no, I broke up, so I just... Okay, are you able to take down a couple of numbers here now? Yeah, I'm going to let you give it to my man here, okay? All right. So I'll just tell you the number, and you can say it out loud, and 
your man can write it down. How's that? Yes. Okay, so the Grace Center out in Harbor Grace, uh, their number is 945. Four five zero zero. Okay. I have that. Okay, let's go. Are you able to copy that down? Yes. Yeah, I have that one. Okay, and I'll give you another one, the recovery center. Okay. Okay, and that's seven five two. Four nine eight zero. Okay. You got those, Selena? Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I, I, got them. I wish you good luck. And you have a really good Christmas. Thanks, you too. And thanks and Merry Christmas to David. I'll pass that along. Thank you, Selena. Good luck. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. Yeah, there are a few because I mean I think there's some thought out there that there are no treatment facilities for addictions and the withdrawal that comes with it but there are some so the recovery center is one i think there's 19 or 20 beds there humberwood of course probably the most notable they do all sorts of addictions whether it be gambling drugs alcohol uh the grace center is in harbor grace that's a live-in addiction treatment facility for those over the age of 18. there's one in central it's called tuckamore there's also the hope valley treatment center so and that's out in grand falls windsor as well there's one for youths called the Charles J. Andrew Youth and Family Treatment Center, and they're actually right across Atlantic Canada. So when you when you think all hope is lost on that front and you want to, you know, reach out to me, email or call me or whatever, we'll try to help connect you with the right facility because if you want help, we got to make sure we can try to get you the help. Let's go to line number one. Jessica, you're on the air. Hi, Maddie. Hiya. How are you? Top shelf today. Thanks. How you doing? Good, thank you. I just wanted to call in. We spoke on Friday. Um, I'm my, I live in Bables. I operate a bar uh, restaurant called Arbor. Right. Um, I just wanted to call in with an update. Uh, we had our photos with Santa Claus event uh, Saturday and Sunday this weekend. We uh, did photos for 73 children in our area, um, and we ma- we managed to raise uh, $2,100 for the Kids Eat Smart Foundation. Terrific. Yeah, I'm so excited. We had such a, a wonderful turnout, um, and the kids were so happy and so excited. So I just wanted to call in with an update uh, and thank our community members, uh, and thank you for getting it on the air. Well, I'm glad it worked out. That's a whopping big sum because every dollar buys a breakfast, and so you just raised 2100 breakfasts. Yeah, so we're um, we're donating uh, to the St. Bernard's Elementary uh, in uh, in Whitless Bay uh, and Mobile Central High School in Mobile, so it'll stay in our communities. Well, good on you for doing it because we also had another call today where they're doing some uh, free photos of Santa, but they are asking for a donation, and mm-hmm. hopefully they come up with a. Uh, equally successful opportunity to make their donation, which is going to go to local food banks. So, you know, wherever people are able to put a little bit of their elbow grease or their money or stuff from their pantry, now's the time. The season is going to be tough enough for so many people. Let's see if Mm -hmm. we can make it a bit easier, just like you and your colleagues did at the bar. Yeah, it was a great event. Fantastic, Jessica. I appreciate the update. Bravo. Thank you. Take care. You too. All righty. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, sometimes off the top of the show, I do a little bit of, you know, today in history kind of stuff just to ease into some of the other topics that we need to and we should be discussing. Today's an interesting uh, piece of history in this province. We'll let Bob tell you about it right after this. Don't go away. 
Now welcome back <laughs> as I fight with my headset. Uh, line number two, Bob, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Compliments of the season to you. The very same to you, Bob. Uh, by the way, uh, I guess you got the envelope I left there for you about the coin found up in Echo Fort. I did. I appreciate it. Okay, right. Now, today my topic is uh, December the 12th. There's a lot of anniversaries. Uh, the first one, December the 12th, 1901, uh, Marconi on Signal Hill, they got the, the first transatlantic wireless message. Uh, that was December the 12th. And uh, anyway, uh, then the next one I remember, I know about, is December the 12th, uh, the KSA burnt down. That's right. Yesterday, and uh, I didn't go up that night, but I was too young. But I went up the next day to see it. My brother went up, I believe, that night. I'm not sure now, but uh, we were young. But he was older than me. He was a teenager, you know. And that concert that night was being broadcast live on VOCM, so yeah. the listeners actually heard someone scra- scream, "Fire!" Yes, I, I was listening on the radio, but I was too young to okay. to go up there, you know. Now, the next big uh, anniversary on December the 12th that I know about is the Arrow Air disaster out in uh, Gander when 242 American servicemen uh, coming back from the Far East. Uh, the plane went down. They were killed. They don't know if there's sabotage or ice on the wings. I don't know if they ever uh, made a ruling on the actual cause of the crash. But that was a bad one. Uh, That was December the 12th, 1985. And uh, also on December the 12th, 1985, I won't forget it, I was down to the stadium Adult skating, I had my first heart attack. So uh, December the 12th rings a bell with me all the time. I would imagine it does. I forgot about the Marconi uh, date. That's absolutely right. And Aeroflight was a 1285R. So the U.S. troops were coming back from Cairo. They were in Egypt and, of course, via uh, Gander making their way back to Fort Campbell in Kentucky. And they're all lost. Up until this year, it's still the deadliest aviation accident ever to occur in the country. And you're right about the confusion about what caused it. Uh, many people inside a majority report put it back to the de-icing of the wings. There are individuals that say they were on the ground and saw an explosion before the, uh, it's a Douglas DC-8 uh, jetliner before it hit the ground. But absolutely, that is a... A troubling piece of uh, Canadian and Newfoundland Labrador history on the 12th of December, 1985. Right, and recently we had the uh, anniversary of Pearl Harbor on December the 7th. That's right. And uh, November the 28th, which is pretty close, the Prince's Rink, the Prince of Wales Rink, known as the Prince's Rink on Factory Lane, burnt down. Oh. And that was nearly next door to me because I was living on... Forest Avenue, which is just across from Factory Lane. So that was a big fire. Absolutely. Uh, You know, something else curious just about the Aeroflight disaster is that 
there were so many disjointed investigations that as a result of that tragedy, that became the birth of the Transportation Safety Board of Canada. As a matter of fact, direct result of that Aero disaster, the Aero flight uh, crash on the 12th of December, 85, that led to the birth of that organization. Right, right. And sure, only a couple of days ago, we had a big fire. Brian Marr burnt down. Yeah, terrible. I have a feeling that was boarded up, and but I have a feeling people were sneaking in there out of the cold. You know, you never know, but there is an investigation on the go. I was in it many times. I used to go in on Christmas Eve. There'd be a big party there, you know? Yeah, well, I personally had never been in there during its glory days, and but you're 100% right, Bob. People have been breaking into uh, Baird Cottage for years, no doubt yeah. about it. Right now, I bought I bought their uh, MGB convertible, the 1972. I had it for 33 years, so I knew them because they lived next door to me. Yeah, Jimmy number one and Jimmy number two, and uh, and the daughter lived next door to me on Forest Avenue for years back in the. Uh, late 30s and 40s so I knew the family and I used to go in there on December uh, uh, 24th you know they'd have a a big a big uh, a big uh, celebration on Christmas Eve so it was quite a house you know I've seen pictures from some different parties and get togethers inside very intricate stylings and decor that much is for sure Oh, yes, a big uh, staircase, an elevator, a dumbwaiter, whatever you call it. That's right. So there was uh, quite a house, you know, uh, spacious rooms and great big six-car garage there and lots of land. But anyway, this heritage, now I don't know if uh, people know about, if you're living in a heritage area, and uh, your house is not heritage, and you go to do something, you got to keep it like it always was. Like, I was putting new windows in my bungalow, built in 1932, and they thought I had to put similar window windows in. The only difference being the ones that I put in opened in and out, whereas the older ones went up and down. Right. So... Uh, you know, you can't just change your house, even though it's not heritage. But if you're in a heritage area, you've got to keep it looking like uh, it always was. Absolutely right. I know a couple of guys who own rental properties inside the heritage zones, and they face the same issues. And sometimes that comes with a pretty significant cost, which is the complicating factor about preserving these heritage sites, not sites, uh, homes, buildings, what have you. Because the the city can't mandate you to spend X amount of money, but we should be able to deal with things like Baird Cottage with zoning, you know, repurpose it as, you know, a bunch of apartments inside, or it's a community center, like I don't know, but anything but it burned to the ground. Right, 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 right. Interestingly, another air-related disaster anniversary is coming up here on the 21st of this month. Back in 1988, uh, the Pan Am Flight 103 went down at Lockerbie, Scotland. 
interestingly, oh, yes, yes. on that front, so 34 years later, they've actually made an arrest. They arrested a Libyan for the potential or the possibility that he was the terrorist that planted that bomb. And after that crash happened, very quickly a couple of groups jumped to the forefront to take credit for it. But that act of terrorism is being investigated for 34 years, and they just made an arrest. Yes, I uh, heard about that on television. He's the third fella, and he's the one that made the bomb. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Or I should have said they made yet another arrest. So uh, there's a lot of disasters, and, you know, you never know your luck when you're traveling. Uh, You all, when you're up in the air, you know, you you can't wait to get down on the ground again. Do you dislike flying? Uh, I haven't been flying now in years, but I used to go every year to Caribbean, and I one of the best flights I had was over to Hawaii. I wanted to see Pearl Harbor, so I saw everything that was connected with Pearl Harbor. It's a long flight. I think 13 hours from here to there with a stopover in. I don't know, Toronto or Montreal. That was 1980. But I'm glad I went because uh, I enjoyed the trip. There's more to Hawaii than Pearl Harbor. But, you know, I did see quite a bit. The submarine uh, uh, museum and I went around Ford Island and saw the Arizona Memorial and I was out to it and I was up in the mountains, uh, you know, where the Japanese flew in through, I think they called it Coley Coley Pass. I'm not sure now. I don't know. So the Arizona, that's the aircraft carrier, is it? The Arizona was the, the, uh, a warship anyway. One of the biggest ones, and uh, Utah, I believe, was sunk there as well. She was a target battleship. Uh, The Arizona was a battleship, yeah. So what's that aircraft carrier that is part of the museum? Is that the Arizona, maybe? Well, the the museum is there, and there is a a Japanese suicide uh, uh, submarine mounted out there. Uh, uh, They found it in the harbor, and they mounted it, so there's a lot of and Fort DeRuzzi on Waikiki Beach. Uh, you know, there's quite a bit of history there. I read a couple of books on it before I went over there, and uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed that and the rest of it as well, you know. Bob, really appreciate the time. I've never been to Hawaii, but uh, I'd sure like to one of these days. I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but... I've always been intrigued by that particular state. Good to have you on the show, Bob, as always. Yeah, right. Anyway, nice talking to you again, Patty. My pleasure, Bob. You take care. Okay. Talk to you again soon. All right, bye-bye. Here we go, Bob Thorne, wrapping it up in style. All right, uh, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.